Hi, listeners. This is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where we have unusually in-depth conversations about the world's most pressing problems, what you can do to solve them, and whether the people living in the center of the earth share our values. I'm Rob Wiblin, Head of Research at 80,000 Hours. I knew I had to interview today's guest, Tom Moynihan, uh, as soon as I heard his appearance on the podcast Hear This Idea. As you may have noticed from the runtime, uh, the output is one of our longer episodes. Uh, I just found the things Tom was saying so weird and surprising that I couldn't resist asking him back for a second recording session. One reason is that Tom works in intellectual history, uh, which is a discipline that I've barely ever engaged with, uh, to be honest. And as is often the case when you encounter an area of knowledge that's full of ideas that are really new to you, uh, the temptation is just to gorge on it, uh, and that is what I've done here. Last year, Tom published the book X-Risk, How Humanity Discovered Its Own Extinction, uh, which exposed me to just how differently people in the past thought about the universe uh, and their place in it. That book is the focus of today's conversation, uh, and to give a flavor of what's to come, uh, here are a couple of pretty common beliefs uh, from generations past. Firstly, that if humanity ever disappeared, it would have to reappear. Uh, secondly, that we can't really safely say whether we're living before or after the Trojan War. Uh, thirdly, that all regions that can be populated will be populated, uh, whether that's on other planets or deep underneath the Earth's surface, uh, and also that all extraterrestrials would have to look human-like. Fourth, that our fossils are rocks that have gotten a bit too big for their britches uh, and were trying to act like animals. And lastly, that all future generations were contained in miniature form, Russian doll style, in the sperm of the first man. If your interests have much overlap with mine, uh, all of that should definitely whet your appetite for the episode to come. All right, without further ado, here's Tom Moynihan. Today, I'm speaking with Tom Moynihan. Tom is an intellectual historian and research associate at Oxford University, affiliated with both St. Bennett's Hall and the Future of Humanity Institute. He completed his PhD at Oxford in 2018, focusing on how humanity had conceived of the possibility of its own extinction, ranging all the way back from the ancient Greeks through to the latest scientific research on that topic today. That research was published in 2020 as the book X-Risk, How Humanity Discovered Its Own Extinction, which is going to be the focus for today's conversation. For me, it was a really amazing book, which really exposed just how differently people in the past have thought about the universe and, and their place in it. And how their preconceptions about that made it uh, impossible for them to imagine intelligent life disappearing for as trivial a reason as, uh, you know, the random trajectory taken by an asteroid. But yeah, we'll get to all of that in a moment. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Tom. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure. So I hope we're going to get to talk about how one actually does intellectual history and the function that it serves. But first, what are you working on at the moment and why do you think it's important? Yeah, so at the moment, I'm working on creating a flowchart of uh, crisp historical insights that have gone into the discovery of existential risk. And the aim of this is to provide a high-level condensed picture of these insights for EAs and other people working on existential risk. I think it would be useful to have that kind of decomposed, dissected view of the idea and what went into discovering it. I'm also laying the ground plans for my next large book project, which I'm giving the working title of The Genesis of the High Stakes Worldview. This is a work on long-termism. And I'm attempting to answer the big question of why long-termism now? Why not earlier in world history? So why were there not long-termists in the 1500s? And why is this important? I think most immediately, and as a simple answer, if you want to shape the far future and value within it, then you should have some basic idea of how ideas of the far future and ideas about value have changed in the past, this can add valuably to one's background beliefs and background assumptions when they're creating predictions regarding the long-range future and how to shape it. 
put differently, if you care about global priorities, then you might also care about the story of why almost all prior generations missed some of the biggest priorities of all. Well, speaking of that, let's launch straight into the book and the thing that I found most remarkable about it, which was that according to you, kind of until the 18th century, basically almost everyone was precluded from imagining that humanity or life could simply disappear because of an act of nature, because of the preconceptions that they had about the about the nature of the world. Preconceptions that at least I'd never heard about and, and maybe seem to have been largely largely forgotten about today. Yeah, what, what were those assumptions about the natural world? Yeah, so there are some very obvious and very high-level ones, namely animism and religiosity. So animism being the tendency to think about the world in a supernaturalistic or spiritualistic sense. However, I thought that the story of the rise of secularism and the genesis of atheism has already been told in plenty of places and been told very well. And also, it's in a sense, I think, more trivial than you might suspect when it comes to the story of thinking about extinction, You can go back and find atheistic or materialistic people in prior epochs of history. So think of the Roman philosopher Lucretius, the Arab poet Al-Mari. These people did think in these terms, but they didn't grasp human extinction and its severity in the way that we now recognize. So in a sense, religiosity is not the key. You know, atheism and materialism, physicalism might be um, necessary, but they're not sufficient for the modern view of existential risk. I guess, yeah, what's the additional barrier? Because I think people might kind of guess that those those are potential barriers, but it seems like there was more than that. Yeah, definitely. So there was a deeper and I think more prevalent and compelling obstructive idea. And that's the idea called the principle of plenitude. Yeah. And what's uh, what, what's that? So the principle of plenitude directly stated uh, says that whatever can happen will happen in its stronger forms. It says whatever can happen will happen reliably and recurrently. And in its strongest form says that all that can happen is happening right now. And that's the way things will be forever. So this kind of principle of plenitude, as you're laying it out there, would kind of have the implication that if humanity ever disappeared for for some reason, then it would kind of have to reappear, I guess, because, well, for one, because like the universe should be like as full of valuable things, like not wasting an opportunity to create something, something valuable. Is that basically right? Yeah, so I think that the way the the principle is most commonly articulated, particularly within the Christian tradition, comes with a load of value claims, lots of axiology. So the idea is often that the world is as maximally full of valuable things as it can be. But you don't even need those value claims to arrive at a idea of the imperishability or indestructibility of species. A lot of pre-Christian people, the pagan worldview, a lot of them talk about humanity and its role within creation quite indifferently, but they still believed in plenitude invariably. And that led them to this idea that humanity would return, regardless of how valuable you might think it is, how central its role is in the universe. Because again, if you're yielding the definition of possibility based on frequency within time, that means that your only definition of possibility is something is possible if it sometimes happens. Now, that sometimes goes forwards in time and backwards in time. So if humanity is something happening currently right here, right now, we can reliably say that it will be happening again at some arbitrarily far future date, regardless of this, if there's some arbitrarily long interval in time where humanity isn't happening. So it creates this sense of eternal return. Okay, so this kind of principle is pretty bizarre and, and like foreign to me as, I guess, a person in the modern world. Why would people believe and be like so deeply committed to to a principle that seems so extreme and unintuitive to us? 
Mm, yeah, well, I think it's hard to say whether it is unintuitive to us now. We've become used to some a lot of ideas that require it to be false. So things like you know path dependence, contingency in the strong sense of the term. But I think it is actually still a very intuitive idea because it's a more intuitive definition of possibility to say possibility is what sometimes happens as opposed to defining possibility based on logical coherence, compatibility, incompatibility. Those require quite complex philosophical insights. So I would, I mean, it would be really interesting for people, psychologists, to actually do tests on this. But I, I do think it's quite an intuitive thing to think. And well, the reason why I think largely everyone invariably thought in these terms is Again, because to not think in terms of plenitude, to not think in terms of possibility being what sometimes happens, to not yield modal definitions based on temporal frequencies, to put it in a technical sense, you need to have a definition of possibility that is, yeah, based on quite logical coherence. And historians of logic have looked into this, and within the Western tradition, those emerge first in the late medieval era depending on discussions of God's omnipotence, because these Christian theologians were rather upset with the Aristotelian world picture, which said that everything was the way it had to be, because they thought that limited God's freedom to make the world otherwise. So that forced them to actually develop this new logic, which talked about possibilities completely unrelated to their realisation within time. So this is all very abstract, but the basic upshot is that it actually requires some complex logical thinking to thereafter think that something could be possible, yet never happen within the real history, the real actual genuine history of our world or our timeline, however you might want to put it. Yeah. Okay. So in normal speech, people all the time have to refer to like something that didn't happen or that you didn't see could have happened in some sense. And I guess the the modern philosophical understanding of that is that it could have happened in that it would have been coherent for the world to have been such that that happened, even though it never, in fact, did. And it never, in fact, was like that. But you're saying to the ancients, or I guess up until like surprisingly recently, people didn't have this idea that what is possible but doesn't happen is just about internal coherence and consistency. And so when whenever they found themselves talking about hypothetical worlds, they, they then had to make this leap of thinking that that must happen somewhere. Okay, so I thought that you were going to give a different answer. And I guess... The, the rationalization that I've tried to come up with as I was reading the book is that, you know, the ancients looking at the world, they just saw life springing up everywhere, or they saw all of these animated things that were so hard to explain. And it seems like in general, they therefore read into this idea that the world has kind of a purpose and that things move. So I think, I guess, in philosophy is called teleology, that things change and things move because there's a purpose that they're driven towards. And because they kind of saw life springing up all, all the time for reasons that they couldn't explain, they therefore thought that the, that the world must have some drive to kind of create complexity and, and create life in, in all of its different ways. And that, that, that was kind of an underlying law of physics almost. Yeah, no, I think that's definitely, uh, that's definitely also a good answer is that teleological thinking was incredibly strong until the scientific revolution. And, you know, it was basically until Darwin that it took for... And then there's actually a a rather significant delay after Darwin actually articulated his theories for them to sink in. So yeah, teleological thinking was very, very prevalent. And that's the idea that, as you say, everything that exists must have some kind of purpose or end in the same way that we think of life as having, you know... Being driven by goals. Exactly, yes, yeah. 
But the important thing is that is that we now realize that that's a heuristic that can be useful to interpret certain things in the world, such as, you know, behaviors or biological, um, morphological, you know, features. We now realize that's a heuristic that we can apply. Before a certain point in time, be it Darwin or scientific revolution, that wasn't even seen as a heuristic. That was just seen as the basic way of seeing the world. So again, I think that that's, that's definitely a factor for plenitude. But as I said, you don't need that kind of value-laden, teleology-laden explanation. You can have this just quite basic explanation that prior to the invention of certain ways of thinking about lo- logical possibility, everyone was in a sense committed to plenitude implicitly and tacitly. So that's why you don't have to go back and find all of these thinkers talking about it quite explicitly. Aristotle does actually talk about it rather explicitly. He doesn't explicitly talk about possibility being reducible to temporal terms, but he shows that he thinks in those ways quite explicitly. Plato, for example, doesn't actually really ever explicitly commit himself to plenitude, but you can see it throughout all of his all of his writing. You know, he says that the demiurge, so that's the creator, you know, didn't want to be jealous of his creation, so put everything that he could be or it could be into the creation. That's a clear sense of plenitude. There's also a sense in which, and there's an open question amongst people who are, you know, Plato scholars, but there's a sense in which there aren't empty forms in Plato. So there's no form which is never manifested at some point in the world. Uh, Interesting. Yeah. So how do we know that they kind of really believe this? Like, is, is there any way in which it could perhaps have been like a metaphor or a joke or a simplification? I guess it, it can just be so hard to like even understand exactly what people are communicating today, let alone like people in such a different culture uh, so, so long ago. Is it possible that, that there, were, there were misunderstanding? Or I guess you're saying usually people didn't state the principle of Hernandez directly, but sometimes they did make it explicit. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, people do say it quite explicitly. So Aristotle, for example, in uh, in Decalo, he says, anything then which always exists is absolutely imperishable. So this is really, I find this really interesting is that he says, what, what the train of thought is to unpack that is that he's saying that if it was possible for species to go extinct and never return, that would have already happened because what is possible is what sometimes has been known to happen. But we find ourselves in a world filled with species and filled with all kinds of things. So therefore, these things must be imperishable. So he's there yielding the definition of omnitemporal or always known to exist in terms of necessity. So it's it's necessitous that species are the way they are and that they continue existing. So... And this is, yeah, this is the people continue to make this claim throughout the whole tradition up until at some point in the 1800s. Yeah. Do you have any other, other quotes from, I guess, people, you know, I suppose we've talked most about the ancient Greeks here, but I guess it seems like, as you're saying, like even natural scientists were appealing to this principle, you know, as late as, as kind of the, the, the 1800s, although I guess it started to wane around then. Mm, yeah, yeah. So I'd, I'd love to read out some some good examples. So um, fast forwarding to the Romans, but returning to Lucretius, who I mentioned earlier, He's an interesting case because there are some points in uh, he has this poem, uh, Dererum Natura, where he puts forward his Epicurean worldview. And it's quite atheistic. It's very materialistic. And there are also points in it where he says that, you know, the world itself is aging and one day the world will perish. It will fall apart. He also talks about species that seem to not exist anymore. He talks about them in the sense they're kind of abominations or monstrous creations that had to be weeded out of creation rather than irreversibly disappeared viable species. 
So he says these things that seem a bit very modern, and people have read into this that Lucretius was an early proponent of extinctions and irreversibility within nature. But then he also says this, and I quote, he says, it is impossible for anything to return to nothing, and so no visible object ever suffers total destruction, since nature renews one thing from another. There is the further consideration that in the totality of created things, there is nothing solitary, nothing that is born unique and grows unique and singular. Therefore, you can have no final instance of a dying kind. And then he also says, and this will become relevant later on, I think, he says, you are bound to admit that in other parts of the universe, there must be other worlds inhabited by many different peoples, note peoples, and species of wild beasts. So those are all plenitude-derived assumptions. And it's, it's, I think that's a very good example, because Lucretius elsewhere says these things that can lead you into thinking that he is thinking in a way that we'd recognize as modern about extinction. Yeah. Yeah, I'm suddenly asking for these quotes because I can imagine people in the audience being skeptical about this, as I was initially skeptical when I when, when I heard this claim, because it just to me sounds so fabulous and such a strange view for people to to to, to have. That I almost, I, I didn't quite I, like, and, it, and it's so convenient for me as well, maybe to think, oh, you know, past generations had this wacky view, and that's why they didn't share my concern about about the risk of extinction. But yeah, it, it does seem like just the accumulation of quotes that you have in the book did eventually convince me that, at least as far as I can tell, you're on the right track. What about a quote from you know someone uh, more recently in in, in Europe? Yeah, so so I have a, I have a couple that I I I think might be useful. So a quick one from Descartes. Actually, well, this one's rather interesting. He says, due to the laws of nature, matter takes on successively all the forms of which it is capable. Therefore, if we consider these forms in order, we could eventually arrive at the one which is our present world. So that in this respect, no false hypothesis can lead us into error. Yeah, can you can you translate that? Yeah, we'll begin to talk about this, I think, later on, unpack it later, this idea that um, plenitude or infinities, eternities can create interesting practical consequences. So we'll talk about this, I think, later, hopefully. But here's also a theoretical consequence of thinking in terms of plenitude. So, you know, not to do with morality, but to do with epistemology is Descartes is saying that if plenitude is true and everything that can happen will happen, no false hypothesis, no idea that we can say about the world is wrong in some strong sense, because at some point in the future or the past, <laughs> it has been true. Um, yeah. it's, it's a really interesting claim. And yeah, again, hopefully later on, we can unpack how that converts from doxastic to, you know, kind of normative ideas. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, I think that's quite a nice and strong example. Okay, so we'll come back to some issues about the methodology of how you do, you know, history of ideas and really understand what how, how past past people thought. But can you spell out whether there's any other implications of the principle of plenitude that we, that we haven't covered yet? I guess we've talked about how like history seems to be cyclical. So if something disappears, then it has to come back later. And that there's this kind of nothing new under the sun. Anything that that arises must have existed in the past. And if something disappears, it'll come back. Are there any other implications that it's worth keeping in mind? Mm, yeah. So you know, if it is, if something is possible then it has known to be natural. You can derive all kinds of interesting consequences from this. And I'm not saying that everyone thought all of these things, but you can find them in different varying bundles quite quite reliably. So one is that if something is achievable now, it will always be achievable. And if it is unachievable, it will always be unachievable. If something is lost now, it will be recovered later. If something is knowable, it has previously been known. If something is achievable, it has previously been achieved. So this all put you put this all together and you get this idea that we cannot lose potential. We cannot lose the potential to do something. You can see why that's obviously relevant for thinking about 
existential risk and long-termism. To put some flesh on those bones, Aristotle, again, to go back to him, he's quite clear about this. He says that every piece of knowledge has been discovered in the past, not just once, not just twice, but infinitely many times. Um, (laughs) Plato Plato says a very similar thing in, in the laws. He says that every possible permutation of betterment and decay has been passed through by civilization or civilizations in the past, because he actually says there have been basically uncountably many civilizations before us. So therefore, per plenitude, everything achievable has already been achieved and all kind of disvaluable states of civilization have already been passed through. Aristotle, again, he says that we cannot, and this is this shows how extreme this thinking can sometimes go. He says that we cannot safely say that we exist after Troy because of you know how narrow the set of possibilities is and also the period of their recurrence. We might actually be living before Troy because it will repeat at some <laughs> future date. Uh, and again, you know, he says it actually the set of possibilities might be so narrow and therefore so too the recurrence that it might be safer to say that we actually live bef- before Troy. Uh, so, you know, really interesting. Oh, and that's because we don't know how long ago that happened. So it could be that we're like, we're, we're before the next one rather than, uh, well, it's, that's, that's an easier way to think about it. Yeah, I guess we're, we're talking a lot about Aristotle, but I suppose it's hard to overstate just how influential Aristotle was on the natural sciences for the for the next 2000 years. People were referring back to him, you know, very seriously, I think, you know, up until almost almost the modern period. Yeah, yeah. And that, that justifies, in a sense, his sheer influentialness justifies my recurrence to him as a important touchstone here. But yeah, I think the, the, the nice way of summing all this up is that achievability is bounded above by what has happened before. And you see this again and again and again. Lucretius himself makes similar claims, but you find it permeating into the early modern era with people like Machiavelli. They talk about the fact that it seems strange if time is eternal because we're currently discovering new things and achieving new things. You could point at that period to the compass or to, you know, all these kind of early modern breakthroughs. So you might then think that he's saying that time isn't eternal or plenitude isn't true. But he actually goes, no, there must be something that truncates progress so that we're in this recurrent collapse and return cycle, uh, which was a very popular opinion during the early modern period and the kind of beginnings of the scientific revolution. Is there any kind of dispute that this is how people saw, you know, the world in the past. Are there people out there who go like, Tom, you're overstating this principle of plenitude thing. You know, sure, some people talked about this, but you're taking it too far. So amongst the people who've looked into this, there isn't any dispute as to the fact that it was the major way of interpreting the world until, at least until the, medi- the late medieval invention of different ways of thinking about possibility that I referred to. So there are historians of logic, um, Yako Hintika, he's very good on this. He kind of initiated the, the research into uh, the history of modal logic and people following him. Yeah, there's not too much dispute on the fact that it was the major way of thinking about possibility f- for, for this period of time. The interesting disputes is on how variant the uses of it are. So there are very many different uses of plenitude. Like Descartes, for example, they're saying, basically to dissolve the possibility of falsity. That's a nice epistemological use. Leibniz, who also subscribed to it in his own way, but in a different way, was really upset at Descartes for saying that. But nonetheless, and this this would become far too technical, but he also subscribed to it in his own way. So all of these early modern philosophers, you know, from Spinoza, Leibniz, Kant, 
they all subscribe to it in various different ways. Kant's interesting because he changed his mind on it. But um, yeah, nonetheless, it's more, the dispute is less about this being a framework for thinking, more about the varying different uses of this framework. So I very much do highlight one particular one, which leads to all these ways of ignoring extinction, basically. Yeah, yeah. So I guess we've talked about how this fits very neatly into kind of a cyclical view of history that everything has happened already and will, and will happen again. But I guess Christianity and some other like traditions that came along later had, had a more you know, error of time view where it's like the world was created and started and then it's going to like reach some, some end point. So presumably people had to like slightly rearrange this idea to, to fit that into the you know, Abrahamic traditions. Yeah, so that's a really great question. So it fits obviously very nicely into the pagan, Greek, Hellenistic worldview that has this very cyclical idea of history. But yeah, of course, you know, Abrahamic religions, beginning with Zoroastrianism, culminating with you know, Christianity and Islam, they have this far more linear idea of time. So how does, how does plenitude fit into that? Well, if you think about the way I was just describing this idea of there being you know, an upper bound on achievability based on what's been achieved. It leads to this idea that value from the point of view of the universe is, in a sense, utterly invariant. If I lose something now, it will be returned elsewhere and elsewhere. If I gain something here and now, it will be counterbalanced by an equitable loss elsewhere and elsewhere. And people are explicit about this. Uh, Aquinas said, you know, God couldn't have made the world better. If he did, he would have made be making an entirely different world. Nicholas of Outrecourt, a scholastic medieval philosopher, said that the world is invariably perfect over time, because if it, if it varied, that would introduce imperfection into God's creation. So the way in which the Christians inherited this bundle of ideas about possibility and potential is that they spoke about what's called theodicy. They spoke about the way that the world was as good as it possibly could be, and also invariably so. So Augustine's quite illustrative on this. He says that mutable or variable value is basically an artifact of perspective. So nature as a whole is invariantly good. And, you know, we can't change that. We can only affect local changes. So, yeah, the way that I like to sum it all up is that this worldview of invariable value, it means that, yeah, you know, the good as a whole is globally conserved through all local generations and diminutions. So, you know, we can be more virtuous people, but only in a really local sense. Only, you know, we can be more virtuous, we can strive to be, but we'll just be repeating previous people, mind you. We'll just be reaching, you know, prior peaks of goodness. Yeah, so there's something that I maybe haven't emphasized enough uh, or early enough in this conversation is that this this view not only makes it hard to imagine, you know, humans just disappearing for no particular reason forever. It also makes silly or like makes it seem silly or futile to imagine that humanity could progress to a much better world at the macro scale than than what already exists. So I think it's it's very natural for modern people to imagine that humanity could have this great story where where the world gets better. Like people are skeptical of this that this will actually happen, but it's, it's totally imaginable within our framework that humanity could try to make the world better and succeed and make a world in which things are for a very long time far better than they've ever been before. But within this worldview, where kind of value is conserved, like the total amount of value in the world can't be changed by your actions because of, I guess, issues like God has made the world, you know, as, as, as good as it could be. All of that discussion about like trying to make history go in a positive direction just doesn't fit. Definitely. Yeah. So I originally called this because uh, yeah, everything's uh, it's a work in progress. 
I originally called this worldview the worldview of indestructible value. But upon speaking to Toby Ord, he recommended that I change that name because the indestructible idea doesn't it only captures that we can lose. It doesn't capture that we can rise above in a significant sense. So that's why I've since been playing around with this, you know, invariable value as a different way of describing it. Yeah. So I guess it somewhat helps to explain why there isn't more discussion about, about you know, what is the great world that we want to create in, in future? I mean, one obvious reason why, you know, the ancients didn't think about that so much is that the world was just far more stable in general. The rate of technological progress was much slower. And so it was natural for people, you know, looking over their lifetime to think, well, it's very hard to change things. Things are just going to cycle through or be roughly constant. But I guess another reason is that because of their kind of spiritual or religious or I guess metaphysical like views about the world, the idea of permanent progress, persistent progress was uh, <laughs> was such an odd fit. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's a really good ground level explanation is that people just didn't actually observe progress as material change in their lifetimes until a certain point in time because it was so slow. Same with extinction is that no one's actually witnessed or observed an extinction for the same reason you can't prove an absence. But doing the history of ideas, and hopefully we can talk about methodology later on, but um, you're looking not just for the fact that something is unthought, you're often trying to look for the stronger claim that something was unthinkable prior to a certain point of time. So that's where all this stuff about possibility comes in. But yes, definitely, it's all to do with, you know, observed life experience as well, is that, you know, no one actually witnessed uh, until, you know, when I was talking about earlier about Machiavelli, for example, in the early modern period, no one actually witnessed material progress. Yeah. I just want to take a, take a quick excursion here. So in general, when you're studying you know, the way that people very far in the past conceived of the world, you know, what they thought about the natural sciences, you just constantly encounter ideas that seem like very misguided, kind of batty by, from, from our modern point of view. And I think people go in different directions in kind of their aesthetic about how to react to this. Like one strain of thought is that this just shows how hard it is for humans to reason at all. It shows the fallibility of kind of our ability to, to make sense of the world. And so it should make us extremely humble. And we shouldn't dismiss the way that they thought about things because, uh, you know, we, we will probably be just as mistaken as they were by the lights of people in the future. I think another take you might have, which is, I think, less fashionable, but is kind of more, more my instinct, perhaps because of my personality, is to say, wow, like, they just thought really stupid stuff. <laughs> I can't believe, like, how, how, how misguided they were. And, you know, I understand how they got there. And if you sent me back in time, I would be just as misguided, absolutely. But nonetheless, this just shows how much progress we've made and how much better we are at figuring things out today, even though no doubt we're still making mistakes. But it shows that there has been big intellectual progress at the big picture. And, and we should maybe be frank and say, you know, people in the past were really wrong about stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, sure, we will be wrong as well in some ways, but hopefully less so. Uh, what, what, what do you make of that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I really hope that there will be future people to look at how stupid we are um, yeah. for a start. But my policy when it comes to reading this is always to have a, a kind of attitude of magnanimity to these, you know, incredibly wrong by our lights worldviews. I think that something almost similar to scope neglect can happen where we see the sheer extent of ignorance in the past and therefore think that it's boundless and this could make you lead you to a position where you think, well, therefore our progress is also, you know, made insignificant within this, you know, doubts boundless sea. But no, I think it's structured. Uh, there, you know, there's bounds to ignorance and we're making progress, but within a space that's potentially far bigger than we can currently think of. I also think another point I'd want to make is that we all take for granted these ideas that are incredibly important to our thinking about the world. So, you know, I think a lot of ideas are crucial considerations, 
and we take them for granted. The way that I like to think of it is we often take for granted our skeleton or our functional breathing. We don't have to think about those kind of somatic realities. But nonetheless, they underwrite every single thing that we're capable of doing. Obviously, if we sat there in awe all the time of, you know, all the contributions of scientists, naturalists and philosophers all the time, we wouldn't be able to get anything done. But nonetheless, I think that they do deserve that all because, you know, these people in the past might have been as intelligent as us in the same way that some, I don't know, counterfactual human that has no skeleton, but the same muscle mass as one of us (laughs) does. But in the same way that that counterfactual boneless person can't do anything, you require the backbone of all these previous thoughts to actually enable us. So, yeah, I guess what what I'm saying is, you know, we all do stand on the shoulders of giants. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's difficult to maybe draw a distinction. These people in the past were not dumber in terms of raw kind of intelligence from a biological point of view. You know, they're probably, you know, are equals roughly, but nonetheless, they got completely wrong answers a lot of the time because they didn't have the right framework and it and it just shows that intelligence isn't isn't enough <laughs> that someone could be incredibly smart today and get very very wrong answers because it actually just takes many generations it seems to weed out all of the incorrect assumptions that underlie how we even think that we can learn about the world and that's yeah that I think that that, that is legitimately humbling at the same time I think there is a, a real chance that we have just actually discovered a meaningful fraction of all of the ways that there are to like learn you know, accurately about the world. The, the scientific revolution, improvements in, in logic and mathematics and so on, they're not kind of drops in an enormous bucket. In fact, we're like a decent fraction of the way there to figuring out the methodology by which one can know things. And so we could be like one, a decent fraction towards actually understanding how the entire universe works. And to some extent, we just can't know whether that's the case until, until we're much further down the line and see whether, see whether further research completely upturns our, our worldview. Yeah, yeah. I, I I think that science has um, particularly these kind of fundamental discoveries. I, I wouldn't subscribe to the very strong idea of paradigm shifts that everything could be thrown out the window. I think there's so much structure and consilience and dependence between different theories that, yeah, we are, We I, I would agree with you. I think particularly in the past, it's going to be arbitrary to say, but, you know, 100, 200 years, we've really started to learn enough to actually make a practical difference based on those background assumptions. And I think that that's what's important. But yeah, a wider point is I think these people weren't less intelligent than us, not at all. But I guess one of the fundamental lessons from all this is that background assumptions really matter, particularly not just on, you know, what might seem like an atomistic claim about the way the world is, but also what we should do in it. Yeah. Do you know if there were kind of any cultures far away from, you know, the Greco-Roman tradition and its uh, and its descendants, you know, maybe in China or Japan or South America or something like that, whether that kind of rejected this principle of plenitude and had quite a different view of things? Mm, yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So I'm trying to look into this now. For the purposes of the book, I was like, I'm going to focus very much on the Western tradition because there's just a lot of difficulty in trying to, you know, the primary texts are there in terms of translations, but the secondary scholarship that you have to rest on is is getting there in terms of stuff in English. But there, there, there definitely is a, a dearth of it compared to writing on the Greco-Roman tradition in the languages that, you know, I can handle. So, yeah, but I have, I, have, I have looked into this and there are aspects of the Indian tradition that do seem plenitude derived. There's a passage in the Bhagavad Gita that I found the, the other day that basically says that, you know, non-being is not, being is always the same, which is, you know, does seem like, like you could make comparisons with Greco-Roman Mm, exactly. Yeah. But in terms of, there are definitely 
if we're going to then add that layer of, yes, you have plenitude and attitude possibility, then you derive these value claims from it and think that the whole world is necessarily filled with value or meaningful or teleological, purpose-driven. There are definitely worldviews that seem way less enamored with that than the Western tradition. So Meso-American, particularly the Aztec mythologies, seemed quite nihilistic in the sense that they felt that the world was entirely fragile. Uh, the whole universe could end. So they, their eschatology was called the five suns, and they believed they lived in the final and fifth sun. I've seen people claim that after that, there's just this belief that there isn't any further universe. However, the perpetuation of the whole cosmos matters and rests and is dependent upon them offering sacrifices to the gods, which is an incredibly anthropocentric worldview. So it's the bundle of the idea that there can be, you know, significant losses in value or vacuities of value. Also, the idea that the world can continue, the physical cosmos could continue purposely, aimlessly, however you'd want to put it, without humanity. And also the idea that, in some sense, the human end can be meaningless. I think that, that but those bundle of insights, and you could add a couple more if you wanted, but I've yet to find any of them all put together in any prior eschatology or mythology or religious tradition that I, I know of. All right. Yeah, we've been talking about the the principle of plenitude, or yeah, what, what it implies, and and how we got it for quite a while. I hope listeners find this as fascinating as I do. But let's let's start talking about kind of the the end of the principle of plenitude. I guess it had kind of you know a progressively harder time between I guess like the 16th century and the 19th century, and people eventually gave up on it. But it took a surprisingly long time because people found all these kind of ways to make it consistent with observations that were you know in ever greater tension with the idea. And these reconciliations kind of made them not worry about the risk of extinction or the, or the loss of value. You know, even when they were finding all of these ways in which it could definitely it could seemingly definitely happen so for example yeah how did people adapt plenitude to the idea or the discovery i suppose that you know stars were in fact other suns and that the the earth wasn't at the center of things so yeah again you might initially think that the beginning the kickstart of the scientific revolution you know what we now refer to as the copernican turn this discovery that the universe you know the universe is vast and we aren't the center of it you might think that that would have initially kind of started to dismantle this worldview. And often previous historians have tended to make this claim. So the one I would point to is it's kind of a, a nice meme that, you know, history of ideas is that the Copernican revolution was this massive knock to human self-esteem. Uh, the one I always refer to is, is Freud's claimed that there were three huge, huge knocks to human self-esteem, Copernicus, Kepler, and then Darwin, and then Freud himself. So his, <laughs> his, he, he had a, uh, a, a plenitude-esque ego. Um, quite a character. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so yeah, you might, you might initially seem that this new model of the cosmos doesn't lend itself to that. The old model did because, you know, it's this hierarchy of nested spheres. That was the Ptolemaic cosmos. And within each of those spheres, it was populated by a part of the angelic hierarchy. So there were angels everywhere. And even in the center, which was considered the worst place, there was disvalue in the sense of devils and demons. So the whole the whole of the cosmos is just, you know, the way I put it is physics was indistinguishable from ethics. But also the whole cosmos is populated by th- something spiritual, sentient, morally significant. So again, to get back to the point, Copernicus comes around, that might seem to, you know, start to fall apart. It doesn't. Because plenitude, it turns out, fits very nicely with certain interpretations of Copernicanism. So people would, you know, look at these, what people were now arguing were these, um, these stars were in fact suns just like our own. 
the assumption follows quite naturally from that that they therefore have planets around them. So far, so good in terms of things that we've since found evidence for. But they continued that process of the presumption of untypicality. So because there's life forms around us here on Earth, those other Earths in those other solar systems presumably all have life. That's the kind of value-neutral version, but it was more than often articulated in a very value-laden sense. So I've got a quote here from the French naturalist Georges Buffon, who was otherwise very forward-thinking. But he said, and this is uh, in the, the, the kind of mid-1700s, he said, is it not more worthy to suppose that there everywhere exist rational beings than to suppose the whole universe depopulated apart from the Earth, to despoil it of all beings and reduce it to a profound solitude in which we should only find a desert of empty space and frightful masses of inanimate matter? Yeah. So, yeah, I, I hadn't really thought that much about, you know, what do people in the 15th century or 16th century think about aliens? So what, what do they think about other planets? And it turns out they had strong views. They thought that the aliens were all over the place, not only on other planets around other stars, but you point out that, that many people suggested that under the Earth, there must be like other, other layers of the Earth. Because, you know, on a planetude view, it would be so wasteful just to have all this soil, all this rock going down for such a long distance within the center of the Earth. So, it, so there has to, at some point, that, that has to end. And then there'll be another layer with, you know, other people, other beings living, living inside the Earth so that it's not wasted, which is just, it's just amazing. I had, I had no idea. <laughs> mm. Yeah, yeah. So, so a, a, another quote that is illustrative that I have to hand is, is from a popular science writer, Robert Chambers. And this is from quite late. This is 1840s. He said, the, the purpose of, you know, biological existence, the purpose of everything is to diffuse existence as widely as possible, to fill up every vacant piece of space with some sentient being to be a vehicle of enjoyment. So this idea that all regions of matter that can be populated will be populated was very prevalent. And so, yes, it applied to these other planets that were presumed to be in space. It would be a massive, massive waste of real estate if all of them were just inorganic masses where nothing interesting was going on. And the further assumption was also often made up until basically around 1900 that these other beings were human-like and shared the same values as us. So you can find people saying this explicitly, that they would have the same moral beliefs, they would have the same aesthetic beliefs. So the idea that aliens might be very different from us, it only comes in the 20th century. But yeah, so too also this idea that, you know, if you dug down deep into the earth, there would be life potentially down there. That's something that Edmund Halley, again, otherwise a very forward thinking and brilliant scientist, he thought that the earth was hollow, filled with populated regions, or if not filled with populated regions, that everything going on in there was in some sense purposed teleologically to the eternal upkeep of life on the surface. Okay, so so they so they handled the discovery of the stars just fine. I guess another thing that started to do damage and started to, to, to make things harder was as we started, I guess, digging down more into the soil and investigating more of the, the earth under our feet, we started finding all of these fossils of animals that apparently were not around anymore. I guess initially mollusks were especially found, you know, shells of animals that lived in the oceans. And initially people were able to say, well, we don't exactly see this kind of shell in animals living now, but you know, maybe it's deep under the ocean somewhere else that we haven't explored yet. So maybe this species hasn't actually gone extinct. Or, you know, maybe it's gone extinct for now, but it'll be back soon. This is this kind of animal that we see in fossils. 
Actually, I should back up and say, initially people suggested that fossils were not actually the imprints of animals from the past. They were rocks that had gotten a bit too big for their britches and were trying to act like animals, trying to act like higher uh, higher material. And so they were pretending to be animals, but of course they, they couldn't move around. So all they could do was become an imprint of an animal. Which is, It's just amazing, you know, how differently people thought in the past. I don't think that was universally believed or anything, but it was a serious suggestion. But then they started finding big fossils of really big animals that you couldn't really say was somewhere that they hadn't had a looked yet. I were talking about kind of, you know, mass, ma- massive dinosaurs. And that did start to create issues, right? C- can you go into that? Yeah, yeah. So so as, as you say, it was originally mollusks. So people would find bivalve shells in mineral form. And yes, as you say as well, the previous idea was that these were upstart minerals that had decided that they wanted to kind of evacuate their echelon in the natural order and move up that mole hierarchy of physics that I was talking about. People like da Vinci, they were amongst the first to suggest the biogenic hypothesis that fossils are actually imprints of previously existing animals. And so when it came to these small shells, naturalists at the beginning of the 1700s, such as John Ray, from whom we uh, inherit the modern definition of what a species in fact is, he found this sneaky way of getting around it, which is that, oh no, these shells exist underwater somewhere that no, no current observer is looking at. And yeah, again, you know, throughout the century, so the 1700s, people begin unearthing in Siberia, in the Americas, they start unearthing these very large bones. So it wasn't dinosaurs at this point, it was megafaunal mammals, mastodon mammoths, and this just didn't fit. However, some very stubborn people, such as Thomas Jefferson, claimed that nonetheless they were still extant somewhere in the kind of terra incognita of the Americas stomping around in the jungle. Uh, he was At claiming California, that, I guess. Mm, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> in the kind of unexplored regions that there were still going to be mammoths. And he was very confident about this up until the 1790s. That just happened to be the decade when Georges Cuvier, a French paleontologist, in a sense, really the first paleontologist and also the first proper comparative anatomist, used his comparative anatomy skills to basically evidence that these fossils are fossils of animals that don't exist today. And at that point, scientific consensus around the reality of previous species extinction emerges Throughout the whole century, so I'm talking 1700 to 1800, the whole previous century, scientists had played around with the idea, but there wasn't enough evidence to get consensus. After this point, there is consensus, and the reality of prehistoric extinctions is falls into place. Mm. Just an observation I want to make is that it's, it's so interesting that you know we thought about the natural world for for a very long time, and basically I think got it mostly wrong. And what was it that saved us? It was the natural sciences. I think this is score one for the natural sciences, just going out and, and exploring things and taking observations and finding that you know, it not only affects your view of, you know, what rocks are there, but it also kind of changes your entire view about the nature of the world. So (laughs) I think it's very interesting, I guess, to see empirical information affect metaphysics in that way. Okay, so one other thing, a gem from the book that I I just can't miss is that there were some people who suggested that life preceded kind of the existence of rocks or what we think of as as inorganic matter, but initially it was living things and that it was the living things like the, you know, the clams, the mollusks and so on that over time extruded the earth, that they had created the soil, I guess, as a kind of defecation or something, and that the earth had accreted as the as the excreta of of animals, which is just, yeah, it's just just amazing. It just impresses probably how differently people thought about everything that I could never come up with a theory like that. (laughs) Yeah, well, just they didn't have all of the data, they didn't have the evidence. And again, the lesson from all this is the the, the fragility of all kinds of claims. Basically, all claims are downstream of 
some background assumptions. So it's a kind of holism of worldviews. And you get to appreciate that by, you know, picking through all these, you know, this vast library of, of error and, you know, failure modes for arriving at, you know, conclusions that seem right to us now. But yeah, the, 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 so it was actually Erasmus Darwin, the famous Darwin, Charles Darwin's grandfather, who made this claim. It was uh, somewhat popular amongst British geologists for a period of time around the 1800s to claim that, yes, the Earth had been kind of composted out of microorganisms so that life, in a sense, predates non-life. And this idea, the reason it was fashionable is I, I, at this point in time, it would probably be useful to mention uniformitarianism which is a presumption in the earth sciences and also cosmology that the present is the key to the past. So this became very popular around this point in time. Again, we're talking 1800 in the nascent earth sciences. So the earth sciences were a new science at this period in time. Physics, you know, chemistry, actually chemistry was emerging around this period of time as well. But, you know, the, the sciences we recognize, some of them predate this for a very long way. But earth sciences, importantly, is a new, a new science at this period of time. And one of the things they argued is what makes it a science rather than just speculating on, you know, God creating Noachian deluges and deciding to pockmark the earth with mountains just to punish us for biting the apple, which were genuine speculations about why the world is the way it was prior to this time. They made this claim about uniformitarianism, which is that we should only conscript in our explanations about the past presently observable causes. That's actually, in a sense, a form of plenitude, because you're saying that possibility is truncated to what is currently observably actual. But yeah, it means that, in a sense, it expunges from science. If you overdo it, which people did during this period of time, if you overdo it, it means you expunge from science origins or terminations, because those are singular events that can't be observed if they happened in the past and aren't currently happening now. So you, perhaps some of the audience might be able to see some similarities with this scientific worldview with the Aristotelian picture that I was talking about. But one, one thing is that if you think you're typical within time, and we live in this world where, you know, as you mentioned earlier, life is popping up everywhere, you probably just think that it's a regular occurrence for life to pop up. So spontaneous generation was the theory of the origin of life, which is that basically life is as an ongoing process all the time just emerging. And for a similar reason, you might want to claim from uniformitarian presuppositions that life is co-temporal or co-terminous with inorganic matter. You know, I, I say all that basically to defend Erasmus Darwin, um, is <laughs> yeah. that he was using scientific principles that we still use today and were actually historically very useful, but he was using these principles in the wrong way to arrive at this kind of nuts conclusion but a similar, a similar one, you know, just, just quickly to finish this, is uh, a, a similar kind of idea persisted well into the 1900s regarding panspermia. So instead of spontaneous generation, people wanted to say that life doesn't just emerge constantly out of unliving matter. Louis Pasteur kind of demonstrated that with some experiments in the 1860s. So people wanted to say, well, where does life come from? But since origins are bad and unscientific, Aristotle himself said you can't have a science of a singular event. Because they're bad and unscientific, let's just presume that life is kind of just everywhere in the universe and is co-temporal, co-eternal within organic matter. And it's just floating around from planet to planet on asteroids. 
And all of the people which, that which, originally... Which we still take seriously. <laughs> well, the thing is, is that all the people that made this claim originally, so uh, Lord Kelvin, uh, Helmholtz, they were people that subscribed to it. They explicitly said that a entailment of this theory is that life is eternal and is basically an element, a con- you know, a constitutive element of the universe in the same way that, you know, Atoms. inorganic matter is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, let's push on. I guess there was kind of a series of ever more difficult empirical observations to um, reconcile with the idea of plenitude and the idea that value couldn't change. So if you look at you know, big fossils of animals that we don't see anymore, I think people observed that, that the asteroid belt and they were like, oh, this seems to be like a planet that's been destroyed and just turned into a bunch of lifeless rocks. So that's that doesn't seem super planetudinous. <laughs> uh, I think, you know, our telescopes got better and people had been, I guess, imagining that the moon might be covered in life. Uh, and they were like, huh. Looks awfully barren. <laughs> it doesn't look like there's much going on on the moon. Then people also observed over, over history like various comets. And then thanks to, you know, improvements in probability theory and physics, they were able to think, couldn't comets hit the earth? <laughs> couldn't they destroy everything? And then they were even able to come up with, you know, probabilities for how probable that, that might be in, uh, for any given one. And then maybe an even more difficult one was that they, they started digging down further, you know, further into layers of the earth and found that there seemed to be a time before there was any life whatsoever. So, you know, you've got lots of different animals and they keep changing. That's hard to explain. Why would there be so much change? But then there's just nothing. And they're like, oh, maybe the earth preceded life completely. And there was just this long time when it was completely barren. And that that really is hard to, <laughs> to reconcile with plenitude. And then I guess you have, you know, Charles Darwin and evolution. And I guess in my mind, that that might really be the be the death knell. This, this totally different vision of, of how life originated. It just becomes almost impossible to reconcile with the principle of plenitude. Is that kind of the right story? Mm, yeah, I think so. I, I think so, definitely. So the gap in the solar system, the Mars-Jupiter asteroid belt, it turns out that was, you know, it's not a ruined planet, but that was a hypothesis for a long period of time. And yes, it created the sense of there being this huge vacuity in our kind of cosmic neighborhood. So William Godwin, Mary Wollstonecraft's husband, Mary Shelley's dad, he was really disturbed by this. He said, God does not suffer any region of matter to be unpopulated, but here we have this, you know, planetary ruin on our doorstep. And the, yeah, all of these insights build up and build up. And it took, a, it took a very long time to trickle into even consciousness in the scientific community. But this idea that the earth was you know, unliving for a long period of time. Obviously, now we've actually updated that. And we know that life has been around on Earth pretty much since the beginning. But it's just been very unicellular, uncomplex life. But this idea that there was nothing interesting, nothing complex going on on the planet for a long period of time. You find that in the very beginning of geology with uh, Nicholas Stino, but it begins to trickle very slowly into consciousness. Around kind of the 1800s, it begins to pick up. And you get this beginning of the forcing the acknowledgement of there being genuine historicity in the planet why that's important to what we're talking about about the long-term future and what can be achieved within it is that this puts a very important end stop on previous eternities wherein everything achievable has already been achieved so in the 1800s you get people begin to think that intelligence is in a sense a kind of recent potentially phenomenon on the planet therefore all its potentials haven't already been exhausted so I think it's really important that backstop on previous eternity. Now, obviously, it's kind of indexical because it's on this planet. So you still have all those other planets in which everything achievable has been achieved. And people continue to think that up until, well, well into the late 1800s, potentially even later. But yeah, you know, that's a very important discovery. To talk about the evolution point, again, as I mentioned earlier, there's this very significant delay between Darwin 
making his claims and them actually really sinking in. And you could also say, in a sense, maybe they haven't even fully sunken in yet. So there's a period after Darwin that um, some historians call the eclipse of Darwinism, where there's this attempt to fit evolution with other explanations of speciation that aren't natural selection. So the major one was orthogeneticism. This was a theory that basically claimed that species have this inbuilt trajectory that's kind of written, encoded deep into their their being. And they go through this period of youth, middle age and sen- senility. As a, as a species. So this is like bringing back the sense of purpose and direction, but now channeled through the evolution of a species over time. Exactly, exactly. So this was a really obstructive insight because it basically created this fatalism about humanity. So around a couple of decades, either side of the 1900, you find people often talking about the age of the race. So they mean species when they say that. They talk about the age of humanity and say that we're still in our youth or that we're near senility. But this creates this kind of fatalism and precludes the idea that humanity might be a species that is able to persist in a meaningful sense far beyond the average for a mammalian species. But yeah, I mean, Darwin himself, actually, I mean, I think it's important to talk about this, is Darwin himself did also kind of retain some of these obstructive ideas. So he was very inspired by the uniformitarian geologist, Charles Lyell. And that meant that he inherited some of these uniformitarian presuppositions. One of them was the idea of uniformity of rate. So that's also called gradualism, the idea that Basically, there's an equilibrium across time between speciations and extinctions. So Darwin actually denied the reality of mass extinctions because he thought that these were, again, artifacts of our limited perspective on the fossil record. Because he was committed to this idea that, sure, species go extinct, but they go extinct at the same rate that new species emerge. So there's this balance, this equilibrium. Related to that, he was very confident of this very continuous view where species die out more because of their more adapted descendants rather than any kind of random contingent unlucky environmental factor. So he does make this claim. So for the Victorian mindset, it actually meant that people were far more worried about humanity degenerating in something kind of less dignified than they were worried about humanity going extinct entirely and having no lineage. And also for the same reasons I just pointed to, It also meant that people were kind of confident that a species as adaptive, as eminently successful as ours, couldn't go extinct by anything other than its more progressive, more intelligent, more adapted descendants. And there was this very strong progressivist view that our descendants, you know, unless we are kind of decadent and do the wrong things and degenerate, they will clearly be better than us in, you know, not this adaptionist view that we now have, but in this very progressivist view that they will be more morally valuable. They'll be better. Exactly, exactly. So despite the fact that there were those intellectual moves, we did start seeing in the 19th century, I think the first works of fiction and art that portrayed the possibility of humanity simply making a mistake and disappearing and like all value being extinguished, you know, without without there being any cosmic significance to it, or that we managed to destroy ourselves through our own stupidity, which, as I understand it, did kind of make quite an impression on people. And, and maybe that kind of artwork did start to start to affect people's worldview. So it makes me think of a question earlier, which is, you know, were these kind of crazy plenitude derived worldviews just things that these scientists thought or did the wider public think them? You can find in poets and, you know, literary writers, 
all of these ideas. So I think Percy Shelley is a good example, the romantic poet. He often talks about there being countless civilizations before us in this eternal planet that doesn't really have a history in any meaningful sense, or at least hints to those kind of ideas. But what's interesting is his wife, Mary Shelley, she writes the first novel, The Last Man, in the 1820s, which is the first, uh, in the English language, the first novel-length treatment of human extinction. And what's really interesting about it is that as opposed to some of the other people around this time, so around the time of the Romantics, the eighteen, the second generation Romantics, I should say, so the 1820s, 1830s, this idea of human extinction in a meaningless sense enters into popular culture via these poets and literary writers. But where, say, Lord Byron writes this poem about the whole world freezing and the biosphere dying out, Mary Shelley is interesting because her novel, The Last Man, has humanity die at the hands of a pandemic, and it really stresses the survival of the biosphere after us. So it stresses the sense that the ecosystems of the world continue without us. And it really stresses the kind of, in a sense, the lack of cosmic pomp and circumstance to humanity dying out, which is a very, for the time, a very mature insight into human extinction. Yeah, yeah. I've only read your your summary of that book, but it does seem incredibly modern from, from what you've written of it. So, you know, just a pandemic appears, the governments of the world try to combat it, they try to stop it, but, you know, gradually just those plans fail and people die out. And then I guess the last few people die out, but and then the world carries on, <laughs> carries on in our absence. It does feel like the kind of movie that you would have today. Mm, yeah. And interestingly, there's three volumes. The first two volumes are just about personal lives and in a sense they're quite boring because it's all this kind of inter-social triviality and then it's the third volume when everything just ends which is again quite interesting in terms of that lack of cosmic pomp and circumstance yeah you know i would actually say that that, that is more modern art <laughs> than what we have today because i think today you don't really see portrayals of just you know everything <laughs> disappearing and because because in a, in a story in which like people decide that there's no opportunity for heroism or learning or redemption all this it's just everyone dies and that's the end of it and i guess i mean i'm sure there is some artwork like that but i think we've trended against that because maybe people don't like it as a story but i suppose at this stage perhaps she hadn't realized that as an arc this is a somewhat challenging thing to make work and so she just went ahead and did it yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree with that as a hypothesis for explaining is, yeah, I think we've become so used to the idea in fiction that we've almost settled back into these, uh, you know, entrenched cognitive grooves of, you know, aesthetic and narrative structures that we just find intuitively pleasing. So, yeah, a lot of the presentations of the end of the world now in cinema and film, I, I find pretty un- uninteresting. Yeah. Okay, let, let's take a diversion from this. We'll get back to a bunch of other concepts from the book. But uh, I wanted, wanted to talk a bit about, you know, how does one do reliable intellectual history? And I guess, how did you do this work of intellectual history? It seems like it's got to be very challenging because, you know, I find it hard to even tell what people around me believe about, about things today. Like, you know, you read the newspaper, you go, go on Twitter and see what people are saying about, you know, current events. And it can just be completely non-representative and you can get completely the wrong impression. And then, and then you see a public opinion poll and like, wow, I, I had no idea <laughs> what, what people actually believed. And I guess when you're doing this kind of work, in principle, you've got all the work by all of the writers and all of the thinkers through all of history that you could go through and try to like understand how did they think about extinction. But you don't actually have the ability to go and read all of them and get a holistic picture. So you've got a sample from that. But then then creates this serious risks that, well, I suppose you could misunderstand them because it's so hard to understand what someone meant, you know, 2000 years ago. But also just how do you even choose where to begin reading? It's a long way of saying, yeah, how did you go about doing this? And why do you think it's kind of reliable? 
Yeah, yeah. So on the first point, I would actually venture that people actually do have more different opinions now as to as opposed to a while ago because of the decentralization of media. So there were in the past, not too long ago, some very strong monopolized centers of opinion making. So the church, obviously, but also even even in the 19th century, there are you know, very few media conglomerates. You know, so I do think that people actually potentially do have more fragmented and atomized uh, opinions now. Anyway, to actually answer the actual question. So, again, I, you know, we've just been talking about, you know, uniformitarianism, geology, fossils. I would use a comparison with paleontology is that paleontologists do not have access to the whole fossil record because plenty of animals, probably the vast majority of animals, aren't recorded. It's the same way, you know, the vast majority of human thoughts aren't recorded. Some of them are and some of them pass down to us. But nonetheless, even though you have that very incomplete record, you still get a sense of the major shape of life, if we're talking paleontology, but also in terms of the record of ideas, I think you do get that, you know, the sense of the the overall shape and you can pinpoint novelties and emergences within it. So there's this thing in paleontology, the signal lips effect, which is a biasing effect where well, it's an attempt to account for a bias where it's argued that you should never consider any any actual fossil, the first or the last instance in the actual record, because obviously of the incompleteness of the record. So, you know, I try and think about and apply a similar principle when I'm thinking about how all of this fits together, is that sure, I'm not going to ever probably get the first instance of a new idea. I mean, I think actually, in some cases, you can, the last man is the first instance of a novel about human extinction in a modern sense. But with these more substructure, logical, you know, background assumptions, yeah, I, I think it's hard and you do have to take that into account. But nonetheless, yeah, you know, the, the biologist JBS Haldane said, was once asked, what would knock your confidence in the theory of evolution? He answered a Precambrian rabbit. I would answer the same question about the very basic rudimental shape of what I've tried to tell when it comes to the Western tradition would be the equivalent would be if someone could point me to someone writing in 300 BC that had anything as insightful or detailed to say about the future of humanity as say Toby Ord, right? You know, that's the Precambrian rabbit. So I don't, you know, I, I know that's kind of setting the goalposts very wide, but I, you know, I do think that even though the record is very incomplete and my reading of it is very incomplete, you still can see the basic structure, particularly when it comes to important ideas. So, we're not trying to understand, you know, what, what people in a particular era thought about extinction or whether they spoke about it at all. Presumably, you know, there's corpuses online that you can search of, you know, all, all of the all of these classic ancient Greek texts. And, and do you like, you know, search for the word extinction, and then like related terms, and then just kind of see what comes up to see if there's anything that's perhaps surprising and unexpected in, in, in what they thought? For older stuff, you actually have to pick through, I think. With newer stuff, you can do a search function on extinction or related words. And I think over time and over just perseverance, you build a nose for what successful kind of searches might be in kind of the same way that, you know, scientists build up this tacit know-how of what to look for, say, you know, if they're looking for particles in a cloud chamber, you know, I'm not comparing uh, what I do as any way as complicated as that. <laughs> but nonetheless, I think you do build up this tacit know-how for what searches are good throughout the corpus. But to answer the question of how to, well, how not to be misled by the fact that they have these people in the past, particularly the far past, have very different background assumptions to us. Well, A, you just have to have a sensitivity to that. 
and again, I think you build that up over time as well, is the holism of these background assumptions and where they emerge and how they all fit together in sequence. I also think that a thing that stumbled me a lot very early on in this research was what I now call false friends. Uh, So I mentioned this in the book, is when you have a claim that on the surface looks very much like an extinction event in the modern sense of the term, you might be misled and be this person's talking about this. So a good example is the Lucretius stuff we were talking about earlier on, where he makes these claims that if you look at them, again, atomistically, you look at them divorced from context and these wider background assumptions, it can seem like an extinction claim. But then you just read, you know, 10, 20, 50 pages later on, and you find him saying men exist on other planets or, you know, people exist on other planets. So I think it's, just a willingness to think about the sheer amount of background assumptions, you know, again, making a similar point, but the sheer amount of background assumptions that go into any important practical or theoretical claim. Yeah, I guess on the, you know, understanding the the context point, at a nuts and bolts level, it seems like, you know, if you're someone studying a theme like extinction, and you go back and look, sample the you know, works from these different cultures, it would be pretty wise to kind of come up with your interpretation and then go and check with people who are, whose like expertise is familiarity with the views of the, you know, the scholastic philosophers or the, or the views of the ancient Greeks or Romans, because they're going to they're have a lot more context and might pick up that you've made a mistake in the interpretation somewhere. Is that a process that one needs to go through? Yeah, 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 definitely. So that's similar to the point I was making earlier with regard to getting to grips with other traditions is you can't just read the primary texts. You need to really get to grips with secondary texts as well. So I really tried to do that with stuff like the ancient Greeks because I can't read Greek, ancient Greek. So I have to read it in translation. That brings in a lot of challenges. Yeah, a lot of potential errors. So I think, yeah, you have to get to grips with the secondary texts, yeah. Yeah. Earlier, it sounded like you were saying in the modern era, people just have all kinds of different different views. But I suppose, you know, looking back at 300 BC, I suppose society was just smaller. Those fewer people is one thing. Most of them were subsistence farmers or, I mean, I guess even in a society that was a relatively settled, I guess, like ancient Greek, where there was uh, significant cities. So probably they weren't spending a ton of time maybe thinking about these things. Or, or if they did, perhaps they were just doing it as, as part of a, you know, religious tradition, you know, religious beliefs, which perhaps would, would, would categorize differently. Yeah, I've read a, or listened to a lecture series a while back about, you know, what was life like for ordinary people? What was, what was it like for women in ancient Greece or in ancient Rome or for slaves and things like that? And the lecturer kind of had to say, there's a lot that we don't know because almost none of the works that survive to this day were written by, by women or, or slaves. And by and large, they didn't think that that was an interesting thing to, to represent in even plays or, or other works. So we, we only have like the most minimal fragments. So I suppose that there are big gaps potentially in, in, what, in what you can access. But at the same time, it sounds like you think, in these societies, maybe the range of worldviews was, was much narrower because there weren't as many thinkers and there was potentially you know, really dominant forces like, like a government that controlled what people thought. So, so perhaps we, we might guess that despite the fact that we're missing a lot of pieces, it would mostly resemble the parts that we do have. Yeah, yeah. So I think I wouldn't want to make a strong claim about the narrowness of the range of worldviews in the past being much less, but um, I think you could make a plausible case for it. But I think that thinking through these things and the fact that it took, you know, millennia to reach ideas that we now take for granted, think are very basic. A really great example that I always point to is understanding of perspective in illustration and painting. You know, that was a renaissance development. These days, I don't know what age children begin, but they, you know, in a sense of osmosis, just pick it up. You know, I was able to do perspective without being taught it, without 
you know, kind of spending millennia of time thinking about it. <laughs> That's not because I'm a genius. It's because, you know, I rest on all of that previous thinking. But yeah, the fact that it t- took so much effort, I think shows that thinking and thinking beyond immediate self-interested ends was the privilege of a very, very select few in the past. They tend to be the ones that we retain records of for obvious reasons, as you state. So I think that the vast majority of other people simply were living in such a, comparatively to us, simply living in such a, you know, day-to-day, a subsistence-level basis that they probably really weren't thinking about, you know, these these very abstract questions about logic, metaphysics, you know, do species exist on other planets, those kind of things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, makes sense. If I went out and, you know, read some books from the field of intellectual history, you know, how much should I should I believe them in general? I suppose I have a kind of hierarchy in my head where it's, you know, if I read a book about chemistry, it's probably going to be right about the chemistry anyway. But then if I read a book about psychology, eh, I don't know. <laughs> where, where, where does intellectual history uh, kind of fall on that spectrum? Yeah, so there's really not the principled, rigorous and established and collectively consensus shared error correction methods that you find in the science, 100%. So I would say come with a level of suspicion. There's also very many different ways and methodologies even within the field of history of philosophy, history of science, history of ideas. You know, a lot of people come at it with what's called the hermeneutics of suspicion. So this is this method where you take the history of ideas and use it to undermine our current normative beliefs by showing how they arise from contingent and irrational factors. So, you know, Freud, Nietzsche, Marx as well, they're these masters of suspicion, they're called. This often leads to a kind of global suspicion about normative claims and therefore relativism. And then on the other hand, you have other people who practice history of ideas in the sense that they, you know, will try and point out where clear gains in insight have been made and then explain why they couldn't have been possible beforehand if that stronger claim of unthinkability rather than just unthought is a claim that can be made. I practice the latter, but you can see from there that in a sense, there isn't just a history of ideas. It's always philosophical in the sense of, at least I would argue that is in the same way that moral philosophy is. So basically I'm leading to saying that you should distrust it as much as you do when you're reading moral philosophy, I think. Oh, wow. Interesting. All right. Let's come back to the book. I guess we've gradually kind of moved forward in time. Last we were talking about the change in views about plenitude and extinction in the 19th century. Let's skip forward to kind of the present day. If you were an intellectual historian in a couple of hundred years, writing about you know how we think about extinction, uh, mutability of value, and the trajectory of humanity today, you know, as a, as a species, what do you think you might end up writing? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, probably, yeah, better asking a science fiction author than me. <laughs> um, but, um, I mean, I hope that there's more future history than history of the idea of extinction for a start. (laughs) So in terms of ways in which we could currently be going wrong, it's almost impossible, I think, to make specific claims. However, I was making this flowchart map of progressive insights and also obstructive scientific ideas. So not just these metaphysical, logical, ancient ideas, but particularly ideas in the scientific epoch that have proved obstructive. And I was trying to map them all out and see how they all relate to each other and draw them back to one, if possible, to one idea. And 
Well, I wasn't able to do that. But one thing that did come up as creating a whole lot of obstructions was parsimony and simplicity as some kind of, you know, epistemic standard. So you can see why that hampered development, delayed development, you could say, in the geosciences and the earth sciences, because it led to this very strong uniformitarian idea, which we kind of glanced upon earlier. But it was so strongly held by Charles Lyell, the scientist who I mentioned, who is a great inspiration on Darwin. It was so strongly held by him that, you know, all losses and all gains in the Earth system must be compensated at some other time, because otherwise it has a history in a meaningful sense. And that's unscientific. He believed that so strongly that he was led to this claim that he basically said that there will be a future point of time in the Earth system when iguanodons and ichthyosaurus reappear. The conditions will be right, so they will reappear. And if you think about it, he's he was led to that claim by putting a lot of weight in parsimony as a principle of scientific explanation. And I guess parsimony is, I guess, trying to make as few assumptions as, as possible or trying to make your model have as few factors as possible. Yeah, yeah. And in history in a meaningful sense as having emergences of genuine novelty, but also the potential for irreversible loss or terminations or eternally frustrated possibilities and wasted opportunities. History in that very meaningful sense isn't parsimonious. So in the arena of uniformitarianism, it obstructed thinking about genuine history in the past, but also a changeable future. Also in cosmology, so these great cosmologists, think of Fred Hoyle, they subscribed to this steady state theory, which claimed that the world was basically eternal. Well, it was eternal, I should say. And this remained a very viable competitor to other cosmologies up until the the 40s, 50s, and then in the mid-1960s when they found the cosmic microwave background kind of denuded that as a theory. But Hoyle himself was drawn to it, I think, because of a care for parsimony. He also really liked the idea of panspermia because, again, it means that you don't have to worry about creating an explanation for an origin of life. Life has always been there. That's way more parsimonious. He also claims that had these very strange views that um, intelligence was in some sense kind of co-creating of the whole of the rest of the universe because intelligence has been around forever It also has, in a sense, therefore designed the universe to reliably create intelligences in the future, this very weird metaphysical thing. But, you know, he was a he was a brilliant scientist. And so, yeah, I think, you know, the view of panspermia, the view of this uniformitarian dinosaurs resurrecting, they all came from a concern for scientific parsimony. Yeah, I think it's very interesting that you're bringing this up. I thought about mentioning this this earlier that because so the uniformitarian idea is that, you know, when you're doing science, when you're trying to explain how the world has ended up the way that it is, you shouldn't make reference when discussing the past history to the things that don't happen now or which you can't directly observe. Is that kind of right? And also when you're forecasting the future, you shouldn't forecast that the world will be hugely different than it is today because that's kind of unempirical. It's too complex. Your your theories are now getting too big and including things that you can't experimentally test or confirm. Is that kind of the, the aesthetic here? Yeah, 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 yeah. And it comes it comes from also another historical contingency, which is the prestige of Newtonian science. So in Newtonian science, all physical processes is reversible. So it's you know time reversible. And that was because of its sheer success in being able to predict the world was thereafter seen as the model of, of all sciences. So this social prestige, which is in a sense, you know, 
independent of the actual theoretical inner workings of Newtonianism. This social prestige that was put on it distracted scientists for ages. Shaped people's worldview. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So I absolutely do think that we that we still see, or we see that playing out in odd things that people say today. Like you know, sometimes I'll say, we need to study scientifically the probability of us having a nuclear war, the probability of you know another great power war. And you know, many people are willing to go along with that. But I think some people, especially maybe people who have been trained in the natural sciences, tend to say that's never happened before. There is no scientific way of studying that. That's all just mere speculation. And they kind of dismiss it on that basis. And I guess they're coming from this aesthetic where you can't study scientifically or think rigorously about unprecedented events. And I think that's just a huge philosophical mistake. <laughs> it doesn't actually even really describe how we do science, because even when you're talking about the natural world, every event is in some sense unique and unprecedented because that exact thing hasn't happened before. So we always have to be making extrapolations based on things being similar to other things. And you know, when we're talking about nuclear war, that's just a more extreme case where we're going to have to extrapolate from other experiences that are somewhat similar. Yes, it, it is more speculative, but that's not a reason not to do it or why it's a completely different pursuit. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And like you said, aesthetic, and I think that's true as well, is that there are quite a lot of essentially aesthetic predilections going into this. So Another historical contingency is that Newtonianism fit nicely with the worldview of deism, which is, you know, midway between atheism and theism, this idea that there's not a personal God who intervenes in the world. He or it kind of set the world running. It's this perfect, nicely balanced system that's, you know, time reversible in some nice sense. And it just continues forever. Ironically, Newton himself actually thought that the world was running down because of friction and God had to intervene in it every now and again mm. to keep it running. But his, <laughs> his, the people coming after him who put this massive social prestige in Newtonian science, it was, I think, an essentially aesthetic predilection. And yeah, there's a really interesting story about how this uniformitarian, to use a strong word, dogma, basically delayed understanding about mass extinctions for about a century and was only overturned in 1980. The Alvarez father and son team, I think Walter and Lewis Alvarez, basically put together this really nice watertight case for the dinosaurs, the um, Cretaceous mass extinction being caused by an impactor event. So, you know, they found this evidence that at the KT boundary, there's this layer of iridium a good explanation for that is coming from an extraterrestrial cause. And that dates very nicely with this KT boundary where the dinosaurs died. And they also later on found a crater that also dated very perfectly. So there's this watertight case. And this created, it's kind of a revolution in the earth sciences where people began to actually entertain these, in a sense, unpredictable and catastrophic events, which previously had been considered completely unscientific. And I was reading the other day a book by David Raup, who's one of the scientists involved in this revolution in the 80s and 90s. And it was really interesting how strongly he was talking about how there was, you know, you go into a, a science department and you talk about a catastrophe or, a, you know, unprecedented event and you get laughed out as being, you know, this kind of pre-scientific catastrophist. Yeah, a crank. Exactly. I mean, it doesn't help that catastrophism has a, has attracted some rather cranky peoples. Quirky characters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So during the mid-20th century, there was this character, Emmanuel Velikovsky, who tried to explain the whole of human history based on these, you know, massive cosmic disasters. 
And there was this whole controversy about how the uh, scientific community should either completely ignore him or actually meticulously try and refute all his absurd claims. And it, you know, dragged in Harlow Shapley and Carl Sagan into it. So there are all these historical contingencies that created this real delay in actually understanding mass extinctions. And moreover, linking back to the points I was making about Darwin, moreover, this idea that extinctions can happen because of bad luck rather than bad genes. So the Darwinian, you know, survival of the fittest explanation that was very set in motion, it's very set in stone, I should say, sorry, in the Victorian era was, again, this idea that species don't go extinct by accident. They kind of deserve it. And you can see people saying this well into the 1900s. There's often this very derogatory way that people talk about the dinosaurs, even scientists, paleontologists who study them for, for a living. You know, people saying that... I, I would have survived an enormous, <laughs> enormous asteroid impact. Well, I suppose they didn't know it was an asteroid then, did they? So they were yeah. thinking, oh, no, they were just degenerate and they got too lazy and weren't extinct. Yeah, yeah. So it, it was. it's, again, a really nice lesson of how the retention of teleological residue can kind of remain via this kind of process of inertia within frameworks that seem to have superseded it. This idea that... Extinctions are always, in a sense, justified because a more adapted animal or a more progressive, more morally valuable animal comes on afterwards. That that fits very nicely into this view that the dinosaurs were just a bit degenerate, decadent, maybe even with their sheer size and lumbering nature. Um, <laughs> and then they died out and then the mammals had their righteous shot at it. Day in the sun. Yeah. Yeah, just sticking with how we think about these issues today, I suppose you know this is going to be pretty familiar with how kind of we in our secular tradition on this show think about this, which is you know things are contingent, history could be different, depends on what we do, value could be much higher, value could be much lower, extinction could happen. So that's kind of the mental framework that that we're operating in. But I guess many people don't have a completely secular view of the world, or they might have a like mostly non-secular view of the world. How has the idea of contingency of extinction and mutability of value being kind of kind of integrated into kind of religious views that? I guess the majority of people in the world, you know, have today. Yeah. So I think that it's hard. I think you'd want to actually get some data on this before I'd say anything. Also, unsurprisingly, I don't tend to talk to too many religious people in the more fundamental sense of the term. So it's hard to say, but I do think that the, the whole notion of existential risk and the mutability of value from some cosmic perspective is still absolutely incompatible with the wider claims about the, the, the religion still holds. So uh, yeah, the way I see it is that there are plenty of ways that they can get around it, plenty of kind of conceptual ac- acrobatics they can do to ignore it, even if it's entertained, if, even if you have to entertain human extinction as a, as a possibility. I also think that there is the remnants of quite Augustinian ideas in the idea that humanity can't do anything to improve the natural world Also in a sense that anthropogenic extinctions, we somehow deserve it because we're a fallen species. I think you can see the residue of Augustinian original sin ideas in in that. But uh, again, this is kind of mere speculation because you'd want to actually, you know, at least go out and talk to a whole bunch of people. But um, yeah, I do think that the residual religiosity is something that we should take into account because it's a vast amount of people. Yeah, yeah. So 
I guess, yeah, both of us are very much out of our area of expertise here. But I, I guess I definitely do know people who are, you know, religious, believe in God, believe that there's kind of purpose in the universe, who are concerned about X risk in a way that's very similar to me. And I think kind of what's going on there is that they, they have a view something like, you know, God has endowed humans with free will, the ability to determine things, you know, for whatever reasons. And just as God isn't solving, you know, poverty, you know, God isn't solving all of these other problems in the world, God might not solve the possibility of an asteroid hitting the earth. And just as we have to solve poverty, we also have to solve these other bigger, bigger picture issues. And I, I think often there's a view that there'd be something wrong with God kind of forcing us to do particular things, but we have to have some level of free will, which which then entails that we have to be able to mess up. And, and that then means that we have to take responsibility for potentially protecting ourselves and, and, and solving our problems. So I guess there is that reconciliation potentially. Yeah, yeah. I, actually, I, I, upon hearing that, I do, you know, I have spoken to people that have views very similar to that. And I mean, it's a kind of Miltonian. So John Milton, who's, you know, in a sense provided this image of Christianity that could persist into a more modern Protestant in, you know, in scare quotes, enlightened world. Yeah, he has this line where he says sufficient to have stood, though free to fall. I think that's a really important and persistent idea. So yeah, this idea that, you know, if because the God of the gaps can recede to, you know, the ultimate cosmic catchments, and we can just be a part of the creation. And I mean, I myself have actually used that Milton quote in a secular context to talk about our responsibility for the future. But I, yeah, I know I definitely agree with you is that you can have this claim that we're, if we're a fallen species, if it's, and if it's meaningful in any sense that we could have stood and done what God wanted, we also should be able to fail. And that includes, you know, this vast natural world wiping us out. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's push on to an interesting section, which was suggested by a listener. And I, and I think is, yeah, I haven't heard you talk about this. I'm very, very curious to hear your views. And that, that's kind of the idea. Could plenitude in some sense actually be true? Is it is it maybe consistent with some actually very modern ideas that, that have come out of philosophy and physics? And possibly, you know, some listeners over the last hour and a half have been wondering about this. So basically, the idea that kind of all things happen, or that the universe is teeming with all kinds of different sorts of life has as far as I can tell, kind of gotten a new birth of life over the last 70 years. And I guess one is from the multiverse interpretation of quantum mechanics, which has this idea built near it that the world is constantly splitting into many, you know, vast different timelines where, you know, even very improbable alternative worlds also occur and are actual. And presumably many of those include all manner of living things that we will never see. And the other is this idea of modal realism, which I guess comes from I think it's kind of metaphysics in, in, in philosophy, which is this explanation of existence, which is that kind of all things that that can exist actually actually do exist. I guess, yeah, people can Google motor realism if they're interested to learn more about where that's coming from. And there's kind of a version in physics where, you know, some people have suggested that all possible mathematical objects exist and that the universe is just one of these such mathematical objects that exists out of kind of uncountably infinitely many such worlds that are out there. And and these are like oddly, they, they have the, the kind of rhyme with the idea of, of plenitude in some ways. So yeah, well, what do you make of the idea that to some degree, you know, plenitude might be right after all? Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm definitely open to the idea. So I, I would also say that it's never really gone away. So physicists, particularly thermodynamics, they've continued talking about it. Yeah, people can Google uh, Poincaré recurrence theorem. There, there are these ideas that look very similar to plenitude. So yeah, I don't think they've they've gone away, and I'm open to the idea that it is true in some in some sense. I guess a couple of things to point out is well, to just take the take the examples that you mention. It's interesting that people in these each of these traditions have made similar noises recently about the effect on morality. So I'm sure a lot of the audience might be familiar with Nick Bostrom's paper, Infinite Ethics, where he talks about infinitarian paralysis. 
So this is based on the idea, you know, this very open question in cosmology as to whether the universe is in some meaningful sense infinite or not. And then he makes these further claims that if the universe is infinite, all possibilities happen. Therefore, all of the moral payload of our actions in terms of consequences is meaningless uh, in an infinite universe where everything happens concurrently. You know, what's the point of stopping a very atrocious act because it will be happening on all the other worlds and also being stopped on all these other possible worlds infinitely many times. Yeah. There'd be infinite positive value and infinite negative value and kind of there's nothing that any individual can do that that would change that, which then brings back this idea of fixed value, that there's nothing you can do to change the big picture of things. Exactly, exactly. So I would say the word I use in the book is cosmic nonchalance when we're talking about plenitude applied to aliens and the fact that if Earth is destroyed, there are plenty of other Earths out there. But Bostrom's word infinitarian paralysis, I think it applies just as much to cosmic nonchalance. So you have that there. You also have in modal realism, people have been making the claims that modal realism means that similar conclusions. There's a paper by uh, M. Heller from 2003, and the title is The Immorality of Realism, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Let the Children Drown. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you, can, you can, I think you could probably extrapolate the argument of that paper. There's another interesting one by Quentin Smith from the same year called Moral Realism and Infinite Space-Time Imply Moral Nihilism. He makes all kinds of interesting arguments in that paper, one being that if you assume that one's dead body has like non-zero value in some sense, maybe the complexity of the atoms, the energy, however, then your being dead is infinitely more valuable than your finite lifetime because your dead, your, <laughs> your dead body and the atoms that make it up will continue for infinitely many time accruing that non-zero, very small value. So, you know, you can extract all these nice arguments about it. And we've known this since it's been explicit since Pascal's wages that infinities mess around with our intuitions. But to go on to the point of what do I think about whether this is true? Well, I'm open to it. I would say that historically speaking, again, similar point I made with teleology earlier is that, well, it used to be the only game in town thinking in these terms. Now we have some ways of saying that these aren't, that there's potential that it's not true. And that's new. The fact that there being other options on the table, apart from infinitarian nonchalance, cosmic resignation, there are other options on the table now. Also, one argument that I find persuasive is that, sure, the universe might be infinite in some you know meaningful cosmological sense, but the affectable and also observable universe almost definitely isn't. Obviously, that's based on relativistic physics that could be proven wrong however the area in which we can you know inflict consequences is probably finite and finite enough that a system with as many degrees of freedom and contingent factors as human civilization and human history is almost definitely not going to recur so that's my response to the cosmological side the modal realism side is well i guess in a sense if other possible worlds are real in some metaphysical sense, does that really affect our behavior? You know, logical possibility is incredibly capacious. And we've, no, we've known that for a very long time if we define it as just something that is non-contradictory. So again, I don't think if you care about consequences, other possible universes being in some sense metaphysically real kind of matters. Yeah. I mean, one other crucial difference is that I think people in the past who are, had this attitude that the universe had a lot of plenitude, they were thinking that that implied that the universe was kind of as abundant with life and meaning and purpose as it kind of could be. 
Whereas even on all of these views, the vast majority of things are not valuable from our point of view and, and they're not full of life. Like most of it is going to be barren or like even unpicturable from, from our point of view. So it, it wouldn't be quite the same notion of plenitude. Even if there's a lot of stuff, kind of the fraction of stuff that is life it would still be quite small. Mm, yeah, yeah. I, I think that's a really good response to it as well. It makes me think of the fact that as I was talking about earlier, the dispute as it comes to the historical purposes, intellectual purposes of plenitude is the way it's used. And I think across history, again, it hasn't gone away. It's just changed in the way that it's used in philosophy. So Nietzsche's idea of the eternal return clearly relies on a sense of plenitude. So prior periods of time used plenitude in this really optimistic sense. I think when it comes to philosophy around the time of Nietzsche, so Victorian, late 19th century, it starts to get used in this very pessimistic or at least value neutral sense. Nietzsche's argument's really interesting. I mean, he uses it as this kind of benchmark of would I like this current act to be, is it, you know, is it the most virtuous act in a sense, because I'm going to have to be doing it again and again, forever and ever. So he uses it as this benchmark for action. But other people around this time used it in this sense to say that progress isn't real in some, again, meaningfully historical sense. So there's a French writer, Louis-Auguste Blanqui, who inspired Nietzsche, in fact, who says this in this book, Eternity Among the Stars, where he says, you know, Progress is actually just a spatial relation across co-contemporaries and therefore isn't this temporal relation between generations. So, you know, in a sense, he says, we could love this because this means I'm going to be in some sense immortal, you know, not just me, but me in this individual moment lasts forever. Or we could be terrified by it because, you know, nothing is meaningful. I can't change anything, et cetera, et cetera. So the way I, the way I try and pithily put this is that whereas the optimists, the theists said that plenitude means that whatever is, is maximally just because the, you know, well, because the universe is legitimate as it can possibly be because all legitimacies are eventually realized. The later, more pessimistic, more secular, more dubious view of the world says that whatever is just is just whatever is. And the realization of no possibility can be illegitimate because legitimation just rests in the realization of possibilities. So this is what leads to Nietzsche's idea of the will to power is that, you know, if legitimation is just the realization of possibilities, then to be just is in a sense just to realize yourself as maximally and prolifically and multiplicitously as possible. So you get this idea that, you know, justice being great isn't about doing normative or rule-based things. It's about just being prolific. So yeah, I mean, plenitude has been used in <laughs> tons of different ways. So I'm sure we'll going yeah, forward, yeah. we're going to see way more. Let's push on and talk about kind of another part of the worldview that people had in the past, which I think was a big barrier to kind of seeing clearly uh, how things were. And, and I, I knew that this that, that was this issue, but I didn't realize kind of how, how severe it was. And that's the fact that I think that, you know, before, you know, 1600, 1700, people didn't really draw a distinction between normative thinking about how the world ought to be and, you know, studying in some neutral Positive, I guess people talk about positive thinking, positive thinking about like how the world actually is. Yeah. Can you talk about how that distinction between studying what is and what ought to be, which we kind of take for granted, was like much, much more blurred in the past? Yeah. So I think just realizing that distinction requires a certain level of epistemological, philosophical work and self-reflection. And that begins, I would say, in the Enlightenment with this idea of critique. 
And so, yeah, I think Emmanuel Kant is is a very important figure here. And so is David Hume, is they both from different traditions, different outlooks, take on this idea of critiquing our biases where we allow ideas of what should be to contaminate our ideas of what positively is. I think this is why Kant's important in the philosophical tradition. You know, you can think what you like about his morality, but his epistemology is important because he pointed out that there are certain terms that are presupposed or requisite to describing the world that do not in fact actually describe anything within the world, but are therefore not just purposeless because of that. They're actually entirely required, but that's because they actually kind of adjudicate and regulate our idea of the world. Could you give an example or be be concrete? Because I wasn't quite following. Mm, So, well, it's the idea that not every concept has to have a descriptive function to be legitimate. Some of them are required to describe because they actually assess descriptions. Now, that's like a really abstract, technical, philosophical thing to say. But that's almost the first time, as far as I'm aware, that really clearly a philosopher said that, you know, things about the way we think the world should be ideally aren't necessarily the way the world actually is. Again, you find inklings of that way before, but I think it reaches a level of clarity and explicitness there. Kant called them regulative ideals. An example of that is something like parsimony. Our explanations should be parsimonious because that's a a way in which a methodological heuristic that is valuable, but that doesn't mean that we can think that parsimony or simplicity is an ontological fact of the universe. If you mix up that distinction because you're not being critical enough, then you end up in these rather strange places where you think that dinosaurs might resurrect because that's a more simple way of explaining the world. So uh, you're saying, Kant pointed out that we should have the disposition of wanting to come up with explanations that are simpler, but that doesn't mean necessarily that the universe is as simple as it possibly can be, which would be a possible confusion that one could form. Yes, definitely. Yeah, yeah. And and I think that Hume also, from the empiricist tradition, had a, a good sense of this as well. So he, in his dialogues concerning natural religion, he takes to town teleological thinking and kind of dismantles it quite nicely. So, you know, you find theologians around the time saying these things that I was mentioning earlier, that all pieces of matter must be populated by sentient existence as vehicles for enjoyment. You know, Hume was really like, that's nonsense. If we do live in a world that was made by a god, it's probably some kind of infant idiot god that doesn't make worlds very well because we clearly live in this suboptimal cosmos. Yeah, interesting. I wonder, like, is there a separation, I guess, between the kind of teleological reasoning and the principle of plenitude and this blurring of normative and positive thinking? Is it possible that it's kind of all just the same thing, that if you believe that the world was created by you know, a being that has intention, yeah, intention and like is you know, maximally benevolent or maximally something, then it kind of necessarily follows that what is, is what ought to be. And so you could figure out what is by figuring out what ought to be. And it would actually be sensible in that worldview to not view these as distinct questions. I think definitely when you come to theologians, theistic thinkers, that tr- that's true. Is that the theism from the theism follows the plenitude and the teleology? But like I said earlier, that's you know that kind of idea that atheism is necessary but not sufficient. You can go and find atheistic pre-modern thinkers who also tend to fall into these habits of thinking, and that's because again, these I think they're just very ingrained biases. Like, the bias is wishful thinking, is that. We tend to think the better outcome is true because we want it to be so. I think that's a really important bias within the history of thinking. And we've only very recently just begun to become quite good at dismantling it. Yeah. Can you give any other examples that we haven't already covered of this kind of blurring of normative and positive thinking? 
So what a really visible, significant one in the history of ideas is the, is the ontological argument for the existence of God. You're kind of saying that I can think of a perfect being and perfection includes existence, therefore it must exist. And that's one of the things is, I'm not sure about you, but when I first learned about the ontological argument as a teenager, I thought, this is ridiculous. How could anyone have thought this? And it's because that I think just wishful thinking was a much stronger attractor in our thinking back when, you know, Anselm came up with it. So, yeah, I think that's a good example. Yeah. Yeah, I guess... The modern reaction, or at least my reaction, was, huh, I can't see like what is the flaw in this logic, but clearly some trick is being played here because this doesn't make any sense. I mean, to begin with, the ontological argument also implies that you have to have the perfect hot tub somewhere and the perfect, you know, soccer pitch <laughs> because for those things also, you know, existence would would be a perfection. I suppose, yeah, people who haven't read about the ontological argument can go and check that out. Yeah, so, so you've talked repeatedly about how, you know, we can kind of formally give up on these ideas, you know, recognize that there is this normative positive distinction, but still we have, kind of have this enduring hangover where we find it really really hard to extricate ourselves from these presuppositions that are like baked into, you know, you know, the stories that we read and the things that people say all the time. I guess a kind of prejudice of mine is to think that people might be making this normative positive mistake when they judge, you know, how good nature is. And so if you say, you know, maybe the wilderness is bad, I think sometimes people find that kind of hard to even imagine. And they'll give replies that wouldn't make sense in kind of any other context. They'll say like, well, that is kind of what, what always has been. They'll just make an appeal to the fact that nature is, and therefore think that that is like a good way of arguing that nature ought to be. Because occasionally you also see when people talk about going and settling space, you know, we could go and go to Mars, go to other planets. People kind of respond with, you know, is it our place to go and like disturb these planets to go and like change the nature of Mars. And I think maybe that's also bringing in an idea that like, well, no, Mars doesn't have people on it now and it hasn't before. So like, why should it in future? Maybe maybe we should just leave leave things alone. And uh, anyway, it's so easy for me to kind of tell these stories. It's very convenient for me to say, oh, people who I disagree with are just making this mistake because of this hangover from an old discredited idea. It's a little bit slippery. How does one actually try to figure out whether that is going on? Mm-hmm. I mean, it is, it is very slippery. I would agree with you though, that those ideas are an example of this thing I mentioned, conceptual inertia, is we now, where I say we, I guess the educated public, but most people do have that cosmological worldview. There are exoplanets. We haven't yet found existence of life, intelligent life elsewhere. These are things that a lot of people know. And I think maybe the people that you're, you mentioned who say, oh, we shouldn't go and settle other planets... They probably have that as a background assumption, but yet they're still in a sense of, you know, inertia, making this claim that settling is bad. And you you see this as the argument that settling other planets is going to be just as bad as how settling other continents was in, in recent human history. I see that argument quite a lot. And it's strange because there's a very significant difference is that the planets, those planets are uninhabited. So that's a, that's a vast difference. Yeah, I think it's not only strange, I think it's deeply offensive because what was wrong with colonialism was the enslavement and torture and displacement and like oppression of people. And then suggesting that that is the same as going to the moon, like a bunch of rocks. It's kind of, it's very funny because it's something that people say, I think, and they feel like they're being kind of progressive in some way or like seeing a kind of harm that other people aren't recognizing. But in fact, it seems like highly dehumanizing to equate enslaving people with going to Mars. <laughs> yeah, I, I 100% agree. I, I I find it exasperating in, in exactly that sense. Is These are just not morally equitable things at all. Yeah, the vast crime of colonialism was that 
they didn't even recognize these other humans as, in a sense, moral, morally significant beings. That was the vast crime of it. There aren't beings to recognize, say, on Mars, you know. I mean, I guess people, people could come back and say, no, I think that Mars is like a moral agent and that it would be bad to interfere with Mars. But I suppose they would have, to, it seems like then the burden of proof is on them to suggest that rocks, which, which we otherwise, you know, on Earth, we don't think about like rocks as moral patients, typically, <laughs> that, 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 that what they're saying really makes sense at all. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. Yeah. Yeah. Another point that you make in the book, which I think is really interesting and that many people don't agree with, is that you know, past ideas of the apocalypse or of a, a grand change in the, in the nature of the world are like fundamentally different from our modern idea of, of extinction. Do you want to make that case? Yeah. So this is one of the things that I think originally motivated me to this project was that I noticed that something different was happening around the Enlightenment, around, you know, 1800, sometime before, when it came to talking about what we colloquially call the end of the world. And I thought, okay, well, obviously, there's a history of this, can I go and track it down? And I couldn't. There's libraries and libraries of histories of the idea of apocalypse, of the end of the world, of millennium. And there are some that are very good that do notice this this kind of change happens. They're often science fiction authors who switch into the history of ideas that notice this, funnily enough. But however, I, I couldn't find one that really told this story. And I think it's just because of some factors of the way that the field is. Some people approach the history of ideas from a perennial point of view. So they want to say that there's nothing new under the sun. There's a kind of perennialism in ideas, which is just to say that everything we think now has a precursor at some point in previous time. Again, the achievability <laughs> yeah. is bounded. Sounds above. familiar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah. that is that is a major outlook when it comes to the history of ideas or just history more generally. People like to say that, you know, XYZ, ancient Greek author, came up with evolution before Darwin or was an atomist before Rutherford, you know, all of these ideas. So I think that's why people have not noticed this distinction or not as many people as I would have hoped so yeah, the, the basic payload of the argument is that I think that in religious and mythological traditions, the idea of the apocalypse is imbued with a lot of significance. So what I mean by that is that it's often seen as the culmination of the moral order, particularly within the Christian, the Abrahamic religions. It's seen as this vast culmination, conclusion of what is moral. So, you know, in rapture, God sorts the good souls from the bad souls, even though it's probably inscrutable to us mortals, nonetheless, the ultimate good is, is still consummated. And that means that nothing's at stake in our individual actions, because, you know, we might be a bad person, that might be bad in some very local sense. But nonetheless, in the end, that big sorting is going to happen. So nothing's really at stake. Whereas in extinction, in the modern idea of extinction, if we're believing that in some meaningful sense, there aren't any other intelligent agents in our kind of cosmic vicinity. It's this sense of this irreversible terminal frustration of what we think of as a moral order. So be that the impartial demand to make the world a better place, not just for moral agents, but also for moral patients, animals, other sentiences. It's the frustration of that kind of upward force, that kind of you know escalator to betterness, which you just don't find in the apocalypse. And there are a couple of other things that I mentioned earlier, like the idea of the physical world continuing without that agency around. 
in apocalypses, it's the afterlife. Everything just switches into this, you know, land beyond. So yeah, even though there are some exceptions, like I mentioned earlier, these other traditions outside the Christian one that have some of these factors in them, they don't have all of them. And so, yeah, the way I sum it up is uh, apocalypse secures a sense of an ending, whereas extinction anticipates the ending of sense. So there's this very, it's a very different outlook. Whereas in apocalypse, nothing's at stake, potentially in the possibility of extinction, in a sense, everything is at stake. I've changed my, the way I talk about this in the book, whereas it seems, I think I imbued too much unique significance on humanity. But again, everything at stake in that sense of there being a kind of direction in the morally meaningful universe. So, yeah, I've, I've encountered this this idea that, you know, the idea of extinction, people have always thought this, it's not a new idea. And it's interesting, people kind of dismiss it on that basis. I think you might say people have thought about extinction for a very long time, and that just shows how fundamental and important the idea is. I'm, I'm not quite sure why, if this was a very old idea, that it would necessarily be one that doesn't matter. I suppose, even though there is a pretty core difference, which is that, you know, a religious apocalypse, in a sense, would be the most meaningful moment <laughs> of, of all time, like the most significant and purposeful moment of all time, whereas extinction where we just accidentally destroy ourselves by mistake is more like spilling a glass of milk. It's like everyone has a very different feel to it. They have some simple ideas, like, you know, the, there's a big change, say, in our lifetimes, or that, you know, our actions are of great significance, perhaps, because they would, you know, at least as you were saying in the Aztec tradition, you know, maybe that would cause the gods to decide to end the world or not. So I suppose if I was trying to defend this view, I might say we might notice some regularities in perhaps the ways that people, you know, thought about the apocalypse and the ways that we today, who, people who are worried about extinction and want to prevent it, might think about, you know, the risk of a, of, a, of a catastrophe today. Do you think there's anything to that? Yeah, I think another prevalent biasing factor is the tendency to think that we live in the most important time. Although now we have actually some evidence-based and quite rational arguments for the fact that we if if history continues for a very long time, we live in what might have been considered one of, one of the most important times. If history doesn't continue very far, then in a sense, we do live in the most important time. <laughs> uh, but yeah. again, that's contingent and up for grabs, whereas in the apocalyptic tradition, it's written, it's determined, it's predetermined. Also, I mean, a thing I was doing recently was charting upper bounds of ideas of the future, so upper bounds of how long the future might be across history. So I was trying to create a chart showing how that's actually just, you know, exponentially exploded across the past millennium. And yeah, you know, when you go back to the Christian Middle Ages worldview, a lot of them thought that the parousia, the return of Jesus, was going to happen, you know, not just in their lifetimes, but in the next decade. As the church consolidated and became very wealthy and stable as an entity, obviously having loads of millenarian cults running around wanting to end the world became a bit of a problem. So they got some of the big figures of the patristic tradition, Augustine, to make these arguments that the eschaton wasn't coming imminently. However, the belief was still incredibly popular amongst lay traditions, not necessarily the ecclesiastes. But nonetheless, it was, it was incredibly popular. Most people thought that the end of the world was happening very soon, and that was a good thing. A really nice example I found recently was there's a chronicle from the 1400s, and it's meant to be this chronicle of the whole of world history from the beginning, so Adam and Eve, all the way to the present, and also including the future. And the chronicle left blank 
some pages at the end of the book for the readers of the book to actually fill in what happens so that they have, will have a complete chronicle by the end of time. <laughs> How many pages were in it? Uh, there were four pages. So, <laughs> you know, the future is yeah. only four pages long. So yes, this tradition has some similarities. Ones that I always like to note are our seeming aesthetic attraction for fire and ice as factors in the end of the world. Those continue into thermodynamics, this obsession with the sun, the sun calling, which turned out to be wrong. This earth is actually going to be destroyed by the sun becoming a red giant. It's not going to cool off in this HG Wells, you know, kind of future frozen state. But yeah, there are definitely aesthetic factors that probably are still very much at play. Also, I do find it interesting that the major, in a really high, abstracted sense, a lot of the major kind of kill mechanisms appear very early on. So, you know, volcanoes, floods, uh, you know, big geological processes. I find that kind of interesting, but it's only interesting in quite a trivial sense that you can find people having intuitions about thermodynamics, you know, millennia ago, because we just kind of exist in that world where, you know, entropy is happening. But exactly. Yeah, exactly. We don't need the mathematics behind it to have some of those basic intuitions. Yeah, I think that's... That's the part that you can rescue of this argument is yeah, people have always thought that they might be living in the most important times. And so the fact that you like think you have strong arguments for that doesn't necessarily show that, you, that you're right. You should be a bit skeptical of that intuition because we all have a degree of egotism inside ourselves which makes us think that the, the world revolves around us and us and our time. I, I wonder what should we make of it when we notice that there are particular ideas that have persisted throughout history that, that really an idea really is, is as old as the hills. You know, another rebuttal that I've sometimes heard when I've talked about how I'm very worried that humanity might create some new invention that would be very dangerous and would take us off track and, and cause a lot of damage. So people, people say, you know, people have always worried about that. You know, look at Frankenstein, look at all of these old stories where, you know, humanity like uses, you know, our own technology turns against us. I think, you know, even before Frankenstein, we've got like ideas of us creating automatons that then turn on us. And I actually think this is one where they're kind of right. Yeah, people might be familiar with the the Sorcerer's Apprentice. I was rewatching Fantasia recently, and it's got the you know that that wonderful piece where where Mickey Mouse animates this broom to go and fetch water, but he doesn't understand the magic properly. So so the broom like fills just just like is is unstoppable, and even when he chops it up, it just turns into more brooms that fill the room with water. And apparently, this story more or less like some variant of it goes back to a satire written by a Greek poet in 150 AD, where it is like an apprentice of a better magician who like uses the magic, and then they don't fully understand what they've done and then things go off the rails but i think is that a is that a reason why we should be unconcerned i think we can flip it around and say this this shows that there's a deep lesson here which is that you shouldn't play with forces that you don't properly understand and that even the ancients understood this that you know uh, if you're doing something new for the first time and you don't have like a lot of experience then potentially you you can mess it up and and your own actions can, can can end up harming you yeah do you have any comments on that yeah, yeah. I, I, I did actually know about that as a precursor to The Sorcerer's Apprentice. That's really interesting. So yeah, I think it's similar to the kind of entropy example I just used. People knew about feedback loops way before cybernetics. They just didn't have the formalization of it. And therefore, you know, a sense of how it fits into other ideas in the vicinity well they didn't you know have much kind of yeah i think from formalization comes a lot of clarity with ideas so i think a lot of basic insights about the world are there and yeah people have always in a sense i think had quite a strong idea about you know the the strength of positive feedback and also as you say this fear of meddling but I think, you know, that can be, that's almost such a basic moral insight that it's almost trivial, but it's, it's, it's also this kind of fear of automation already there. But 
I mean, that goes back a long way. Yeah, interesting. I suppose it is just kind of ambiguous whether, you know, like a very odd story might reflect the kind of cognitive bias that we have that just keeps popping up and keeps infecting our thought, or whether it reflects the wisdom of the ages. <laughs> One kind of maybe just has to think about things, <laughs> like assess the object level arguments for, for for the case, which I think is, yeah, there's a certain move that people want to make where they don't want to consider the object level case for like, is artificial intelligence dangerous? Is synthetic biology dangerous? They want to say, look at the sweep of history and how people have thought. And using these tools of critical analysis, I'm going to demonstrate that synthetic biology won't be dangerous, which I I think it's a it's a, it's a it's a very dangerous move to make. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I think so. Moving from you know my field to a more empirical scientific idea is in psychology. There's this idea. I think it was uh, coined by Pascal Boyer of minimal and maximal counterintuitiveness, and it's this really brilliant theory where the claim is that a minimally counterintuitive idea, so one that obviates one kind of common sense ontological principle about the world, say a talking tree, that is way more likely to spread than a idea that is a lot more counterintuitive than that. But it's also more likely to spread than just a boring, plain, old, intuitive idea. So he uses this as a explanation for religiosity, I believe. But I find it really interesting from the perspective of the history of ideas is that a lot of these ideas that violate one kind of principle, they spread very quickly so, you know, a golem in the sense of some automata that, you know, is breathed with life and then, you know, rises against its its creator. That's a nice myth in that sense. But then all of those maximally counterintuitive stuff that you put on top of it to link it forwards into what we now talk about as, you know, superintelligence, AGI, those are the important ideas and they're max, maximally counterintuitive and therefore they've required a lot more hard work to to create in the sense that I think that, you know, there are these default kind of basin places in the space of ideas that we all kind of revert to quite a lot and it takes a lot of energy to kick out of them. And so, yeah, I, I think that this counterintuitiveness idea is a very good one. And I think that's one of the places where history of ideas can be useful in terms of epistemology is I would argue we're not very good at telling how intuitive our ideas are. And I think the sequential progression of the discovery of ideas is actually a good criteria for judging how intuitive they actually are. Also, how often they emerge independently in different cultures. I think maximally counterintuitive ideas spread. They appear once and then spread across all cultures because they work. I mean, this is also an answer to the wishful thinking question that you asked earlier, is why was this mixing up of normative and positive descriptive statements so common? I think a kind of a simpler explanation, the very philosophical one I gave, is that it's actually from a kind of egoistic prudential level, probably just way nicer and easier to live in a minimally counterintuitive world, to live in the manifest image, you know, believe folk psychology, and there was a certain point in time, the scientific revolution, and then actually a delay a little bit afterwards, where in that critical mass had to be kicked in, where in living in a maximally counterintuitive world actually started to pay dividends on the individual level, where, you know, we start to have massively rising living standards, et cetera, et cetera. But before that point in time, it was just nicer to live in a world where wishful thinking and all kinds of other uncritical forms of thought are just the modus operandi. I think that's probably just a simpler explanation. Yeah. 
Let, let's push on to talk about some other conceptual uh, advances which you which you name check in the book as potentially being necessary to having our modern understanding of existential risk and the possibilities of the future. Because yeah, one is just the uh, it's so intuitive, right? <laughs> it's almost hard to imagine how people could could have reasoned at all without it. But that's just the idea of, the idea of probability that things would have you know a ten percent chance of happening or a twenty percent chance of happening. Which I think initially people started figuring this out through gambling and games of chance. But yeah, before that, people didn't have, they, they wouldn't say that something was 10% likely. That would kind of be a, con- a confusing concept that didn't fit into, into their worldview, which is just fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. So if the audience are interested by anything we've spoken about here and might think that history of ideas is something worth, worth looking into, I would really recommend a book by Ian Hacking, the philosopher of science called The Emergence of Probability. I would say in terms of method, it's inspired me more than any other because he really makes the claim that Here's a point in time where a new idea emerged, and not just a new idea, but a very important idea as well. Here's why it was unavailable beforehand. And that idea is, you know, as the title states, probability. And he puts forward this really interesting case for why that is. A lot of people have argued about this. So prior to this hacking book, they've noticed that probability is an absent field of mathematics prior to some point in the early modern period. And there are lots of different arguments. One of them is that before the introduction of modern arithmetic by Fibonacci, you just kind of couldn't really compute these things well. One of them is that there are economic factors that made probability very lucrative, you know, l- lucrative, exactly. So the beginning of you know, underwriting and insurance business in the late medieval uh, economic boom. So these are all good explanations. Me being a historian of ideas, I would like to propose another one on top of Hacking's already great story. And that's that if you don't have a conception of possibility that is divorced from uh, realization within time, exactly, you're not going to be able to conceive of each individual dice throw as the realization of a wider space of what they used to call equipossibles or equiprobables. You're just going to see it as this inscrutable line of events. You're not going to see it as, in a sense, an expression of the technical term being a synchronic space of possibility. So again, I think that late medieval invention of new ways of possibility is really important here. There's actually some new writing on this that shows that these late medieval thinkers in this commercial boom in, say, the 1300s, give or take, were actually already thinking about probability. So the the hacking's, hacking's date is sometime around 1600. And it's actually been updated backwards to, say, 1300, where you get these merchants talking about probability in, in quite, you know, quite a recognizably modern sense, which fits well with my idea about possibility. So, <laughs> so <Nice>. that's nice. <laughs> but, um, yeah. And I guess, so if you didn't have a, the ability to kind of analyze and calculate probabilities for things, I suppose that would have made it very difficult to talk about something that's, say, improbable but might happen. Like, I guess, one of the early times that people tried calculating the probability of a disaster was with these comets that they saw coming around. And they're like, hmm, so if a comet intersects with the Earth's orbit, you know, what's the probability that it, that it would hit the Earth? And, you know, people calculated, well, how large is the Earth relative to its orbit? And we're like, well, I guess it'd be one in whatever, how, how many million chances uh, it is. But without the idea of probability and like possibility that many different things could happen, but they don't, you wouldn't have been able to take that step. And actually, I think another concept that was necessary for that was the idea of kind of doing mathematical modeling, where it's so intuitive to us now that you might put time on the x-axis of a graph and then project forward the motion of an object or like a tendency in society. But that was a step forward in itself, like making time a variable and then using math to make a forecast about the future. Mm, Yeah. So I see those developments as in a large-scale sense, incredibly intertwined. So the invention of calculus and the invention of probability theory. But yeah, as you say, absolutely required. So to talk meaningfully about incredibly improbable events prior to that 
bringing into clarity the ratios, putting numbers on it, people, again, in that sense where they're, we're, when in the vicinity of very large numbers, very, you know, extreme ratios, we kind of just think, oh, it's impossible because that's easier to think. You could actually start to talk about these very unlikely but very catastrophic events. And yeah, the first time I found someone putting a probability to a you know, humanity-ending disaster is, uh, as, as you mentioned, Joseph Leland in the 1770s, yeah, decided that he was going to put, I think it was one in 73,000 chance of a comet if it did intersect with our orbit hitting us based on timings. Later on, you get uh, the brilliant German astronomer Wilhelm Olbers. He actually kind of computes that into a time frame of recurrence. He said 4,000 years between every close encounter. And I think it's 220 million years between a head-on impact. The interesting thing is the way that people interpreted this at the time is People didn't really understand probability theory. Uh, so thought it would, it would happen with that exact frequency. Exactly, yeah. So you then get uh, people, there's a story by the Russian romantic author Vladimir Odeevsky, and he actually has this, this future utopia set in the year, I think it's 4,438 or something. But that's just him putting the numbers on one of these forecasts and thinking that's the year when it's Biela's comet is going to come close to Earth again. So yeah, people thought that these were like exact forecasts of, of recurrences <laughs> rather than these like probabilistic windows. I mean, you still see that, that tendency today in kind of news reports about disasters. I guess maybe I've seen it with volcanoes where like, oh, this volcano tends to explode every 200 years and they say, and it's been 200 years, <laughs> which could make sense because some, some things are recurrent in that way that they need to you say the pressure needs to build up over time. And it does happen with a, it's more like that happened after 200 years than after a hundred years. But many other things are just completely random, but people still have this sense that if it happens every, like this idea that we're due for things that actually happen just uh, independently. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, it also shows that there's still, you know, that disjunct between <laughs> the, the lofty, <laughs> the lofty scientists and uh, the actual public. But yeah, these forecasts cause genuine panic. Yeah, in the streets of Paris, there was, you know, people uh, rioting almost, I think. So yeah, it's an interesting episode. Yeah. I guess there's been further advances in how we conceptualize probability going from the, the kind of frequentist notion, which is saying, you know, probability is like what fraction of an amount of time something happens to thinking that it's, it's, it's instead a reflection of our subjective beliefs, which then opens up the possibility of attaching probabilities to events that only ever happen once. So if you think like, say I've, I've applied for a job uh, and I'm trying to figure out, will I get this job tomorrow? That event might only happen once where I apply for, for this particular job. But we still want to say that it's meaningful to say, you know, I have a 30% chance of getting the job or a 90% chance. But until we you know, flipped over to talking about probability as a reflection of our subjective beliefs about the future and our, kind of the credences that we attach to different outcomes, that people couldn't really talk about the probability of things that, that were so infrequent that you would never get a, you know, you'd never be able to take enough measurements to assess how often things happen. Yeah, yeah. So it's illustrative that the first instance of putting probabilities on you know, global disasters was with comets, because it's very much an objective probability in the sense that these, they, these astronomers were making observations about the number of comets in the vicinity and also their pathways. And, you know, they were making observations. They were there, so therefore, they were reasoning, reasoning from, you know, what they could see to how likely, how frequent something was. The others, the subjective probability, as, as it's called often, that actually has, so hacking in that book that I just mentioned, he points out that that's existed 
basically from the beginning of probability is this split has been there between thinking about probability in terms of objective frequency versus probability in terms of degrees of belief. But it was always this kind of underdog that was considered unscientific, considered almost this unscientific contamination of subjectivism into this objective domain for a very long time. And there's a, there's a very good book called The Theorem That Would Not Die that tells the story of how Bayes' theorem was ignored for centuries and considered this, you know, subjectivist nonsense until sometime after World War II, when there were just these accumulating evidence of how just how effective it is at prediction. Yeah, it's it's too useful. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I still do encounter this issue today. You know, sometimes I talk about, you know, people estimate that the probability of a nuclear war, you know, in any given year is is, is 1%. And you do get this reaction, sometimes from people who are kind of quite educated, I would say, like, maybe miseducated, they say, that's a meaningless thing to say, because the nuclear war has never happened before. And, that, and they'll either say that there's no probability that one can attach to this, because it's a unique event, or the probability is 0%, or the probability is 100%. And we don't know. And it's very interesting, this, yeah, this conceptual blinker, it closes down the range of things that you can analyze or, or even think about. It shuts off the discussion entirely. And I think it is something of an aesthetic of not wanting to allow subjectivity to come into science or thinking that if something is bringing in kind of someone's subjective beliefs, that that makes it extremely suspicious and worthy of disdain. Yeah, yeah. I think that that force is definitely with us still. And I've encountered that as well. It's this sense that when you're talking about future probabilities of unprecedented events, that people balk at the sheer idea of doing that. But the point is, is to give a, you know, some sense of the magnitude and comparative magnitudes of, you know, what people judge the risk to be. And again, it's this, I think this is a theme emerging from a lot of what we've been talking about is that it's much easier to think in absolutes, be it something being eternal versus never happening. And it's also, you know, easier to think of something just being infinite rather than enormously finite. It's a similar kind of almost inability to think about very, very large magnitudes, things like that. Unrelated, but I think enlightening point regarding future time and past time is that it was realizing that they were in some sense, based on our best scientific picture, meaningfully finite. The future is potentially gigantic, titanic, but finite is what actually, in a sense, removes that intoxicating aspect of eternity, where it forces you to resign because if human civilization doesn't achieve its best thing here and now, it will achieve at some other later date. It's after that sense of large finitude of the future that people actually begin talking, as far as I'm aware, and as far as I think, people begin talking meaningfully about maximizing value within it in in some grand sense rather than, you know, some kind of localized sense. So it's after thermodynamics that you get people like Nikola Tesla saying that the greatest problem of science is to increase the amount of solar energy flowing through civilization and things like that. So I think an important point that I'd want to make about all of what we were talking about is that the discovery of enormous finitudes and also the ability to work with them is, I think, a very progressive insight. And in the vicinity of enormous finitudes, not to just go, oh, that's eternal, or that's infinite, you know, to be able to think meaningfully about orders of magnitude and those kind of things. I think that's very important. Let's talk for a moment, I guess, about, you know, utopias and dystopias and, and different visions that people have had about the future over the years. I guess, yes, something that comes up in the book is that just that people's various hopes and dreams and fears about the future have changed a lot over time. Maybe could you give us a, you know, a, a sampler platter of a couple of different examples of the visions that people have had for a very different world in the future that have come up over, over the years? 
Yeah, so I think it's an interesting place to um, enter into that is by looking at the word itself. So people have always thought about utopias in some sense, you know, going back to Plato, his Republic, probably before. But utopia means nowhere, in a sense. It's a, a kind of place, it's a spatial idea. So you might have this idea of there being a utopia, this much better place, but it's kind of happening concurrently. So again, this idea of plenitude, that what's possible is what's happening. So you have this sense that there are these you know, peaks of achievability or peaks of goodness, but they're currently happening just elsewhere. And that's important. So Plato actually says in the laws, I think he says, he's, or maybe as the Republic, he's talking about his ideal state. And he says it's kind of already happened in the past or it might happen. It will reliably happen again in the future, which is an interesting thing to consider. It's only around the 1700s when the idea of history as having a future materially and consequentially different from the past emerges that you get this idea of Uchronia. So Uchronia is a ideal society based in time, so invariably in the future. And yeah, you get the first ideas of these, uh, the first time travel narratives emerge in around 1770. But what's more interesting is around this time, you also get the idea that these much better states of possible future civilization aren't just based on the perfection of statesmanship or interactions between humans, they're also based on materially renovating the material world. And that's a really important development. So just just to clarify what you're saying there, I guess utopia, as I understand it, comes from Greek. So I think it's the prefix "u," which means good, <laughs> something positive. And then I guess topia refers to, that's, that refers to space in some way. And you're saying, so in the past, they conceived of utopia as a place that must exist somewhere where this, these really good things were happening. Whereas over time, we started thinking, no, well, utopia doesn't exist anywhere in the present, but it could exist at a future time, which I guess you or other people want to call uchronia. So it's like a good era. Mm, yeah, yeah. So the word uchronia was first used in a, a French... As far as I'm aware, it was first used in a French novel in the early 19th century. So that word itself emerges around this time. But the important thing is that it's not that, you know, these peaks of achievement are already realized and it's just a local thing if we manage to realize it here and now. It's that it's actually this space of possibility and is is potential. That's the important distinction. So, yeah, you begin to get this idea that it's not just concurrent, it's also potential but also that is based on changing material conditions. So I guess before the 17th, 18th, 19th century, people were thinking about it mostly as just, say, we would reach a good time through the improvement of moral values or the way that people lived or their ability to manage a state or something like that. But then I guess as the Industrial Revolution was taking off and people could see advances in technology in their own lifetime, they're sort of thinking, oh no, the way we could reach it potentially through technological advancement and completely changing the, the nature of our lives. Yeah, exactly. It takes a while after the scientific revolution for the idea of, you know, changing the material conditions of humankind to take hold. I think of uh, Jonathan Swift in Gulliver's Travels, there's this section where he really satirizes scientists and their what he calls projects or projectors, uh, the people that create these projects to better the material conditions. 
because it took a while. There was a delay after the scientific revolution. It took a while for the dividends of this research and unlocking the mechanics of the material world to actually kick in and become visible to people. So there is this uh, there is this interesting delay. But yeah, it's around. It's sometime in the 1700s you see people start to really kind of speculate about what the limits or the furthest reaches of this pro- these processes must be. And one to point out is Marquis um, de Condorcet, and he wrote this brilliant essay on the far future of humankind, and it's one of the first ones that talks about it in a very materialistic register but also is you know very bold in the kind of upper reaches that it's talking about he talks about some very interesting things he says that um, the material conditions of humanity will continue improving indefinitely until the earth is knocked out of its orbit or some catastrophe happens to stop (laughs) it because you can find people talking about this beforehand there are some proto-utilitarian french thinkers there's one Saint-Pierre he says similar things but there's no kind of idea of the fact that this upward surge of civilization is based on you know material conditions of nature that could be foreclosed by some natural event so Condorcet has that he also has this interesting thing where he talks about the fact that learning or increases in knowledge and intelligence create more increases in knowledge and intelligence so he has some basic idea of this like ratchet uh, feedback positive effect feedback of, Exactly. Yeah. And he says that this is a really powerful force. So there are some really interesting parts in there. So it's around this time. This is like the 17, 1770s, the, the latter end of this, this century. Uh, you get these bold visions of humanity actually affecting the Earth at a planetary scale. And it's these French, you know, French proto-utilitarians and then later French proto-socialist utopian thinkers who have these really bold visions of the Earth renovated. And so what that means is removing all of the wasteful, barren, currently underutilized or unpopulated aspects of the planet. And they talk about it in these nice quaint terms of beautifying the earth. And it's often quite, you know, it's, I enjoy these visions, but they often have these rather, these rather troubling aspects as well, where they celebrate how humanity is extinguishing wild species or species that predate humans. So, you know, tigers, sharks, whatnot. So I think of the natural, the French naturalist uh, Georges Buffon. He talks about humanity beautifying the earth. Says that this is kind of bringing the earth to an age of perfection. He also provides some ways that we could prolong its habitability by creating more livestock because he thinks that that'll heat up the cooling planet, which is an interesting, <laughs> interesting insight. But he celebrates the fact that humanity is killing all of these wild species. Now, there's one one final uh, French utopian that I point to, uh, Charles Fourier, who was this very kind of absurd in a lot of ways, but very speculative proto-socialist thinker, no relation to Joseph Fourier. He had this idea that in the future, part of this beautifying of the planet Earth would be to create what he called anti-lions or anti-sharks or you know, anti-predatory species, wherein basically humanity would use technology to domesticate these species and kind of reroute them into useful things. So he talks about, you know, uh, killer whales dragging ships through the doldrums, which is obviously nonsensical, speculative craziness. But what's interesting is he there is saying, instead of these other people that are saying we should just kill all these wild animal species, he was saying we should kind of repurpose them for rational ends. So, yeah, these are all, again, very quaint, very silly visions, but it's, you know, early ideas of humanity actually creating consequential material changes to its environment. Yeah, it's interesting that that issue of concern about problems with wilderness or problems with the natural world, I guess it's maybe, I guess there was a flourishing of discussion about that when people first realized, oh, possibly the world could completely change. And it seems like that probably disappeared for a while and now it's like maybe being reconsidered again. 
at least at least at least amongst the people people that I know the the white animal suffering folks. How did the vision visions change? I guess over the over the nineteenth century, is there like a clear trend in in the different kind of pictures that people paint of the future? Mm, yeah. So the trend towards thinking boldly and grandly about changes to the planet continues. So it's throughout the nineteenth century that you actually get a bunch of geologists begin to announce, baptize a new epoch of geological history, which they called the Anthropogene or the Psychozoic Age. And they saw this as the age in which intelligence was now the major driving force in Earth history. You know, obviously we can see parallels with talk of the Anthropocene now. So there was, yeah, this, you know, widely optimistic vision that intelligence was now the driving factor in the planet. We'd now entered this Psychozoic Age in which rational ordering was uh, what was going on. You know, obviously, as the consequences of the Industrial Revolution unfold, and across the next century, people discovered the negative effects of that, that vision's been complicated. But it's interesting to see quite early on people having this view of this psychozoic age. Then what's interesting is around the turn of the 1900s, particularly the 1920s, which is a kind of miraculous decade for thinking boldly, grandly about the future, these visions begin to spill beyond the earth. So the first place that I've managed to find someone talking about interplanetary diaspora is Henry Thoreau, the American writer, and he's actually trying to satirize a utopian called Adolf Etzler a German emigre to America who had this crazy vision, probably the first uh, vision of green energy. Uh, he, th- he says that we can break Malthusian limits by just rerouting the abundance of natural energy that's being bathed on us all the time, whether it's the wind, the oceans, sunlight. He says, if we just reroute all of these things, we'll you know burst through the Malthusian limits and be able to like increase population on the planet happily by a huge amount. And he was writing this, I think I think it was the 1830s. A man ahead of his time. Well, yeah, he's very ahead of his time. I mean, if you actually go and read it, it's completely nuts and bonkers and there's no <laughs> barely any science in it. Okay. Uh, but uh, the, 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 the basic insight, though, no, it's, it's absolutely right that the basic insight is very ahead of his time. Thoreau, obviously, you know, a fan of nature as it is rather than how it could be, was very upset by this and uh, satirized him in this pamphlet called Paradise Regained. And in it, he kind of takes this uh, reductio ad absurdum approach to Etzler's idea of, you know, re-engineering nature to basically extract more value from it and says, well, how about if our super intelligent projectors and scientists are unhappy with the fact that this world uh, will have its own senescence and decide to just leave and go and find a more clement planet elsewhere? This was in the 1840s. What indeed? Well, yeah, exactly. And then so going back to what I was saying before about the turn of the 1900s, you begin to find more and more people talking about this idea of interplanetary migration to increase the longevity of life, civilization. Some really important figures in this, J.B.S. Haldane, a uh, British Indian geneticist, J.D. Bernal, an Irish crystallographer, Konstantin Salkovsky, a Russian rocket engineer. Yeah, these people all begin to start talking about spreading beyond Salkovsky's progenitor, Nikolai Fedorov, the Russian philosopher, spoke about ushering not just the planet, but the solar system into its psychozoic age. So an age where it's kind of ruled by intelligence and morality rather than the blind, random forces of nature. And I think the the important context here is that in the 1920s, you know, it's an era of a new generation of telescopic technology. So think of Edwin Hubble, 
this Mount Wilson Observatory, this idea that, you know, there's an extra galactic universe out there, this really begins to take hold at this time. So this idea of the capaciousness of space and, you know, I think it, well, it just vastly increased the kind of canvas of consequences to do good within this natural world that is potentially now at this kind of suboptimal state. I can't remember whether this this was in your book, but I think I recall from some lectures about the history of the Soviet Union that in the 1920s, well, I guess Russia had just been in a series of famines and wars and problems for for many, many years. But in the 1920s, they had this brief respite (laughs) where where things were going kind of well and people could potentially uh, recuperate their lives. And there was this flourishing of Soviet art and like thinking about how how the future could be much, much better. Uh, Are there any interesting examples from that? Yeah, so so cosmism is is the name for the movement created by Fedorov, the philosopher I mentioned earlier, and continued by Salkovsky, this scientist. And they were both real visionaries. Salkovsky is incredibly interesting. For example, he's one of the first people that I've seen talk about the fact that well, he says that intelligence creates positive experiences. You know, the more developed the nervous system is, the we can think about how much more enjoyment is capable of. Uh, but then he also, and I, you know, people have said that before. You get um, uh, kind of second generation utilitarians talking about, you know, the fact that, well, I mean, even, you know, going back to Mill, the idea that humans are probably, you know, capable of more pleasure than a pig. But Salkovsky, who has this very science, science fictional bent, says, well, who's to say that humanity is the limit? Humanity is definitely just the beginning of this upward bound of uh, ability to have positive experiences. And he really goes on and actually talks about the creation of brains at kind of, um, you know, solar system levels. And, you know, these really, really uh, speculative grand futures, but very early and uh, very visionary. Yeah, it's it's interesting that like I feel on some level like quite a lot of affinity with these crazy dreamers from the early Soviet Union. In in a sense, I feel like they're having ideas that I hope will one day kind of have a renaissance, or people will think bigger. They'll dream bigger about how the world could be so much better. But it is interesting that these streams of thought also seem to be associated with terrible atrocities and like attempts to remake the world that that go incredibly awry. And I think it's interesting that at least as far as I can tell, the people who are who kind of dream biggest about changing the world and making it far far better in the future these days focus much more on how to prevent things from going wrong and seem much more scared of of downside. And I wonder whether that is in part a reaction to the fact that kind of previous people who've dreamt of a much better world have mostly ended up making it a lot worse and haven't managed to achieve the dreams that, that they had. And so now maybe people like me who are utopian in, to some degree, <laughs> mostly like have more humble goals of simply preventing things from like, like we've seen how things can go wrong and we're just trying to stop that from happening again. Mm, yeah, well, I think it's to do with further complexification of our model of history and also ideas about possibility and realizing potential. So the model of history invariably, or at least very commonly during during the, uh, the 19th century and a lot of the 20th century until the atrocities that happened you know, towards the middle of it, was very based in this quite confident, progress-based, teleological idea of progress, wherein the idea was that it would kind of happen regardless. So this is almost like a latter-day form of plenitude, plenitude being this idea that the, you know, the good in the universe is invariant, regardless of what I do here and now. The idea of progress kind of just temporalizes that. You know, Hegel called it the ruse of reason. So even when someone does bad things or missteps, does irrational things, that's still part of the wider process. So there's this idea of inevitability that, yeah, took some dismantling. And well, I think, yeah, what's interesting now is that 
we have a far more complicated sense where we have a sense of the capaciousness of future possibility and value and goodness within it, but also a real keen sense of how fragile that is. And those two insights have taken a very long time to converge, and I think are only really converging in the current moment. I mean, particularly the long-termist insight that there are things that we could do now that might foreclose some future valuable event from happening at some arbitrarily far distant time. You know, there's lots of different orders of complexity about thinking about, you know, modality, temporality, history going into that. And I think, yeah, they've only just kind of bundled together quite recently. Yeah, I guess it does make some sense to me that that one has taken perhaps a while for people to really buy into because it is a somewhat surprising notion that there's things that we could do now that would close off options to people 10,000 years in the in the future. And again, you know, many people remain skeptical of that today. It, it takes uh, potentially some theorizing and some kind of empirical information to convince people that, that that actually is the case. Yeah. All right. Maybe one last question about the book before we move on. Are there any kind of big claims in the book that you kind of most worry might be wrong in some some important way that you're going to regret having written in five or 10 years? Uh, well, there's plenty that I already regret in a sense. <laughs> um, so I think just from continuing research, you know, having published it around six months ago now, it seems arbitrary, a lot of the focuses, because I've realized, you know, I fleshed out places that I didn't current, that I didn't previously know. But I guess that's just an aspect that you'll have in any ongoing research project. One thing I'm worried about is there is probably a lot of Eurocentrism in it based on what I was talking about before in terms of, you know, the lack of good secondary sources on history of ideas in English about other cultures, you know, non-European cultures. For example, I recently found out that there's, you know, some very early utilitarian insights in the Chinese tradition. Moism, right? So, yeah, Moism. Yeah, yeah. So that's really interesting. I was looking into that recently. I do think that just a cursory glance, the worldview still has this idea of heaven or Tian, which is this, you know, kind of ultimate arbiter of the impartial good. And regardless of what we kind of do as humanity, that will still always win in the end. So it doesn't have that kind of cosmic variability of value. But still, the fact that a very impartial sense of value had appeared so so much earlier in the Chinese tradition is really interesting. So I think there's definitely some some Eurocentrism that probably goes into it. And I'm going to try and correct that going forwards. Other things, I think I mentioned this earlier, the axiology, the kind of wide, high-level axiology, I did stress or seem to stress this idea of humanity bestowing value on the world or you know, kind of creating human-made value. I think I stressed that too much. Since writing the book, I've become a lot more, well, I read some more Henry Sidgwick and I've become a lot more interested in that way of looking at things. Okay, let's let's just back up and explain this one for the audience. It's a tension that I noticed in the book, and I think some other people did as well, that sometimes you describe value as this kind of objective, natural thing that could exist apart from, you know, humans or any other intelligent species apprehending that that value exists. And then there's other times where you talk about it as though if there were no humans or intelligent beings around to value something and to see that there was value there, then the universe would be without without value. Am I understanding right, like the, the kind of tension between like two different philosophical stances that have come through in the book? Yeah, yeah. And I think I have since realized that that's a tension. And I think it comes from a view of the Enlightenment more based in the kind of Kantian tradition than the, or the Germanic tradition than in the Anglophone utilitarian one, which stresses the Enlightenment as well in Kant's definition, it's the emergence of humanity from its self-imposed knowledge. Uh, to translate that, it just means kind of submitting all our claims to the authority of reason rather than any arbitrary seat of power. 
So those arbitrary seats of power might be nature's precedent or the precedent of tradition or might is right. This idea that in a sense we define what is right for ourselves is the basis of the enlightenment of kind of modernity itself this idea that we can legitimate our own moral claims rather than just receive them from or inherit them from nature or tradition. And I think this comes from taking this historical outlook is because shaking off the yoke of tradition and arbitrary power can look a lot in the historical process, and it did to these to these individuals, as if humanity was, in a sense, defining and making its own values, bestowing them on the world. And I think this is what channels people like Kant into this kind of era where they think that humans are the only thing that matters. You know, the only reason why we shouldn't harm animals in Kant's argument is because it might kind of uh, degrade humans. Yeah, exactly. Which is, you know, it's kind of a ridiculous view. But taking that historical look, it looks like humanity is making value rather than finding it. I have now become, you know, far more invested in that more impartial Sidgwickian kind of view after having engaged with it more deeply. And I think it's the far more coherent view. So I think that humanity or, well, moral agents discover what is valuable in the sense that the first humans didn't know what was impartially valuable. So we've had to kind of discover it through using reason and evidence and correcting errors about value. So that can look like a making, but I think ultimately it is a finding because it seems to be converging and arriving upon this very impartial sense. So again, I go back to the distinction I made earlier, and this is one that from talking to Toby Ort, he kind of stressed to how important it is to me, is this distinction between moral patients and moral agents. So, you know, I think ultimately that if there were no humans, there'd still be value in the world if there are moral patients like animals, sentient beings. But it would just kind of be lurching around randomly and aimlessly without this kind of upward force towards making the world more valuable or containing more value. And I think it was just not really being aware of that distinction and how it would kind of create a lot of nice equilibrium between a lot of my other commitments that led me to this strange tension So, yeah, I think that, you know, nature happens to create value, but only does so haphazardly and blindly. Whereas humans can do it deliberately. Exactly. So once you have a species or a being that can, you know, apply right reason rather than arbitrary precedent or instinct, whatever, to isolate sources of value and then try and maximize them, you have in the same sense that, you know, life tends to create more life for the first time you have this kind of, you know, moral agency that can then tend to create more value. So yeah, I think that ties it all together in a more coherent way than I, I did at all in the book, where there were lots of, lots of commitments and tension. Yeah. All right, uh, let's push on and talk about a different theme, which is kind of in light of intellectual history more broadly, and I guess this, this piece of intellectual history specifically, like what might we be getting wrong now? It seems like People who've worked in history, who've worked in intellectual history, tend to go in like different directions where they think about what do we learn from all this? That there's one stream of thought, which is kind of deconstructionist, postmodernist, very skeptical and cynical about things, which says, look at how mistaken people have been all through history and how they all disagreed about all of these different things. And it seems like none of them was really tethered to any reality. So given that, shouldn't we assume basically the same thing of us, that it's just a series of different conflicting narratives and who knows what's true? Like maybe nobody, nobody is right. I guess a different take might be, well, look, actually, <laughs> if we look at the, at the track record, it seems like we're getting better that, you know, however wrong we are about things today, it seems like we were much more, more wrong in the past. And actually, maybe we should resuscitate the, the idea of, you know, the forward march of history a little bit. Yeah. Where do you come down on this one? 
Yeah, so that's a that's a fantastic question. So I began, you know, this is around a decade ago, I began having that prior worldview, the kind of postmodernist, deconstructionist one, post posthumanist. It's the current vogue in a lot of continental theory. And that's just because of the kind of corner of the humanities that I emerged from. Instead of being taught, you know, Quine, I was taught Derrida. So I started off with that kind of worldview. And then it was, you know, from trying to look at the Enlightenment, trying to dismantle it, that requires actually reading the Enlightenment. And I was actually very convinced by a lot of its texts. Um, (laughs) And so, yeah, so then, and also just through reading through, I was just convinced that there are these vast gains in insight and also moral insight, more importantly, that have happened. And I think it's just undeniable that humanity has gained a lot more insight when it comes to the big picture. So things like the fact that you go back a certain amount of time and everyone thinks that the universe is in its most optimal, valuable state. Uh, William Paley, the famous argument from design theologian, this was around 1800, he said that, oh, uh, we might not like mosquitoes and mice, but they're actually really good because when a area is unpopulated by humans, it will be filled by these kind of lower creatures that are kind of placeholder, you know, vehicles of (laughs) sentience that mean that value in the world can never dip below some certain level. No one would say that anymore, or at least not many people would say that. Or for example, Alexander Pope in his brilliant long poem, The Essay on Man, He says that everything that happens in the universe happens for a good end, including the destruction of Earth. And it's good that we just don't know when that will happen, because otherwise we'd worry about it. And he compares this to the lamb that licks the hand of the slaughterer. That's barbaric, right? So the fact that we now wouldn't say those things, I think is just, in my view, undeniably, again, an insight. So I think actually picking through the history of ideas and you know, this is me talking from my own personal experience. So, you know, take it with a pinch of salt, but it actually converted me away from a pessimistic worldview towards one that's more convinced in progress, or at least the possibility of progress. Yeah. I guess someone who is more skeptical might respond that, you know, people in the past probably would have taken a similar view. They would have said, oh, look at all these people in the past who had different views from us and like, look at how horribly mistaken they were by the lights that we have now. And so we can see that we're progressing. But then, of course, we look from our perspective, it looks like they were wrong as well. So that so they would have been mistaken. And I think that's, that's part of where this comes from is like, if you take that kind of outside view, it's like, if all you know is that you think that you've made progress, then what fraction of people who think that they've made progress really have? I mean, it's an argument that definitely has some bite and and should give us some pause. I kind of want to respond by saying, you know, we have planes now, (laughs) we can go to Mars and all this. So I feel within at least like some domains of inquiry, there's just really strong concrete evidence that we can do things that they would be very impressed by and would regard as progress by any measure of like engineering and, and science and technology. Now, it is possible that we've made lots of progress in engineering and some areas of, of science and technology, and perhaps in philosophy or ethics or social sciences, where it's a lot harder to test whether you're right or not. Maybe maybe we've made little progress or, or no progress that's possible. But I would guess that these kinds of progress go together because there's common reasons why they would all be expected to advance simultaneously. Like you have more education, people are healthier, they have more time to think about these things. So that, that's like a different outside view perspective that makes me somewhat more optimistic that we're not just kidding ourselves when we think that, that we do know more, <laughs> we have some better ideas than we used to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that you can always point to the fact that people a thousand years ago didn't know about, you know, subatomic processes or, you know, stellar nucleosynthesis, or even talking about Hubble earlier about the fact that there are extragalactic galaxies. You know, mm. these are these are things yeah. that we know now rather than earlier. 
I guess another thing that's really assuring about those kinds of examples is that it seems like if we could transport someone from the past to the present and show them the information that we have now, that they would be persuaded that we're right and they're wrong. Like people in the past didn't have microscopes, so they didn't know about bacteria and viruses, but now we have them. <laughs> we could show them to them if we could transport them through time. And I think that would be persuasive to most. Likewise with telescopes. We shouldn't expect that people are going to know the nature of the cosmos when they can't see it the way that we can now. Mm, yeah, yeah, I, I, I definitely agree. I, in terms of ways that we might be going wrong now, my sense is that um, talking about microscopes is that one of the principles of science that has proved most obstructive is uh, so earlier we talked about uniformitarianism stemming from parsimony. I think another one is Copernicanism has caused us to go as wrong as it's caused us to go right. What's Copernicanism in this context? So it's related to uh, uniformitarianism in the sense that it's a claim about typicality. So it's the idea that we are typical within space or within time or some other some other parameter. So it's named after Copernicus, who you know initiated what we call the Copernican Revolution, which was the shift from thinking that we're the center of the universe to thinking that the Earth is you know potentially just another planet among many. Later on, you know, people discovered that the Earth as a planet, well, you know, we've proved it in, since 1995 with the discovery of exo, well, the proof of exoplanets, that, you know, the Earth is actually very untypical as a terrestrial planet, whereas that's, there's been an ongoing argument about whether it is. Yeah. Okay. So, so you think that scientists are probably too misleadingly attached to the idea that what they see is going to be typical of everywhere or like things that are true about like humans or Earth are probably true across the, across the universe. Yeah, so Copernicanism in space has proved very useful or very successful within cosmology, astronomy. Copernicanism within time, which passes out basically as uniformitarianism, has proved very obstructive. There are also other ones like Copernicanism of scale, right? So to explain that, the idea that if we're untypical in space, if we're untypical in time, all these parameters, then we're probably untypical in scale. So people like Leibniz, and this is what links back to the microscope is around the time of the discovery of the microscope, there was this idea that matter is, in a sense, infinitely divisible, but also infinitely divisible into organic life. So if the scale that we currently live at is filled with living things, and we have this microscope that's just discovered living things at a smaller scale, then we can probably think about life just all the way down. So this was a very popular worldview in the early Enlightenment, and it comes from this misapplication of Copernicanism. You know, not it would never be expressed in those explicit terms, but well, actually, it was in 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 some cases it was. It was compared with people would say that the the organic universe revealed down below through the microscope was equitable to this you know living thronging multiplicitous universe revealed by the telescope. So basically, what how does that cash out into something useful for us now? I think that oftentimes in the past things have gone wrong by over applying a principle that's useful in one domain. And using that as a justification for using it in a, in a different one. So I'd say maybe be dubious about arguments to say you should believe, you know, X in A domain because some principle has been used to establish Y in B domain. I also think that as a second point, just from reading through all of these kind of earlier failure modes of arriving at some sense of the potential preciousness of, of life and moral agency... I'm dubious when I hear people talk about these ideas of the re-evolution of intelligence on Earth, or even the re-emergence of civilization after a sufficiently destructive event. So I think it's you know some point in um, one of Robin Hansen's essays in the original volume on global catastrophic risk, 
I think he makes the prediction that after a civilizational collapse, it would take about 20,000 years for humanity to, to re-arrive at its current state. And now that I think, you know, that's in many ways is a safe inference. It's based on history. We know that the kind of course of history that we've taken is possible because in a sense we've witnessed and observed it. But is it probable? There are potentially loads of kind of selection effects that uh, you know mean that maybe we did it way way quicker than could have been. There's this question in the history of science, the Needham question, which points to the fact that China as a civilization was in many ways far more technologically advanced than Europe was, but just didn't manage to have a scientific revolution in terms of kind of instituting science as a method of inquiry and a way of, uh, you know, making knowledge ratchet itself. It didn't happen in China, even though it was way more advanced uh, in many ways, in many, many measures. So that kind of tells you something about potentially, you know... It's possible to get stuck. Exactly, exactly. And I think that that also applies to the evolution of intelligence. You know, paleoanthropologists point to this point in um, the human revolution, which is the emergence of behavioral modernity, sometime from 50,000 to 75,000 years ago when humans develop culture, language, in the sense that we'd recognize it. I think that a similar thing applies there. So, you know, there was a post on EA forum that I saw by, I think it was Robert Harling. It was a really, really fantastic post on how we could rank order how bad certain existential catastrophes are based on how much of the, you know, the kind of vertebrate lineage they wipe out, because that then adjusts how much we should expect an interval of time for the re-evolution of intelligence. Now, what I would stress from just, you know, bathing myself in all these, you know, people in the past, highly confident about the tendency for intelligence to appear everywhere, to appear recurrently, to re-evolve on Earth, I would just be dubious about that. That it would happen at all or that we can estimate, you know, what exactly which filters are going to take the, take the longest? Because, you know, with, with N equals one. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think the latter, because, you know, with a sufficient amount of time, evolution will probably explore the whole morpho space or possibility of space. But that amount of time, and this is only something that I, as far as I'm aware, is beginning to be explored by biologists now, that interval could be far wider than, you know, the life cycle of a star. So yeah, I think these are all things to take into account. Yeah. Yeah. I guess with, um, on questions like, you know, if, if humanity was wiped out, would another similarly intelligent species arise again? And, you know, how long would it take? And also, like, if, if we had a collapse of technologically advanced civilization or the kind of advanced civilization that we have now back to something much more basic, you know, would we would we get back to, to, to the same position we are in today? We have so little data that it seems unlikely that you would want to put your estimate close to 0% likely or to 100% likely. It's going to probably be, be somewhere in the middle. Yeah, I, I feel like it's just going to be pretty radically uncertain, especially on the evolution one. If you're like, well, what if we got rid of, you know, all of the primates and, and apes, then, then what would happen? <laughs> I, feel, I feel like we're pretty in the dark about that one. On the one of what happens if we had a nuclear war and like things kind of fell apart and people weren't using computers and advanced technology anymore, but, you know, there were still like hundreds of millions of people. I feel on that one, I have... A bit more of an idea that I have an inside view about how people behave and I have, you know, I guess we, we understand how we got to where we are today with, with, with some level of understanding. So I feel, you know, maybe 90% confident that we would be able to eventually get back to where we are today if we, if we weren't hit by some other catastrophe. But I suppose maybe maybe I'm a bit reluctant to go above 90% because <laughs> there's still a lot of X factors. Like maybe we, we misunderstand the process by which we got here. Yeah, yeah, I'm on the same page as you with that. I'm not saying that it's radically unlikely that um, after some collapse, humanity would, you know, regain science as an important institution. And I say that because, you know, having a grand future is clearly 
gated on science in, in some sense. So, yeah, no, I think we're on the same page there. I just I think that there's sometimes a sense of overconfidence coming from, I think, a lack of um, people bank on kind of the future will look like the past. So whatever happened last time, they may be pinning a little bit too closely to that when we just don't have enough data to do it. Exactly. Yeah. In the same way that in evolutionary science, it went from this quite you know teleological confidence of there being, you know, this one kind of escalator going upwards towards satellization, bigger brains, intelligence the progress since the modern synthesis in biology has been to, well, in many quarters has been to reassess that and actually stress the sheer contingency, the fact that there's a lot of biases that go into us thinking that there's that upwards elevator. And that comes from a big wider appreciation of the degrees of freedom within that system. And I think that it's the same with culture, civilization. Obviously, it's materially different, significantly different in lots of ways, because you'd hope that we converge on you know, certain things like truth. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I know I do think that, that an appreciation that there are there are more degrees of freedom within this system. But yeah, we're on the same page. I would, you know, I, I, I don't think that if there's some collapse that leaves a significant portion of humanity behind, then we just, you know, kind of live as subsistence. Get farmers. Stuck forever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was reading this piece a couple of years ago. I'll see if I can remember it by a physicist who was saying, you know, in the field of physics, we spent decades trying to come up with a better theory of everything that would be, you know, neater and simpler than the standard model while still explaining everything. And kind of, we, we haven't had a, haven't had a lot of success. And they were saying, maybe the problem is that we spent all of our time trying to come up with theories that are beautiful in our mind, that are kind of the thing that we think should be right. And, and that means simple. So it's parsimonious. And that often it has, you know, symmetry. So it's like a theory that's simple and like everything lines up and, and everything like there's matter and antimatter and so on and so on. But they're like, what if it's just not like that? <laughs> what if, in fact, the theory of everything is just a is, a is a real mess from like our aesthetic point of view? It's kind of related to the point that you were having about, you know, people come in with or like in science, they come up with particular preconceptions about the methodology that has worked in the past is necessarily going to work in the future and making making future discoveries. But I suppose if you only ever apply this one methodology, then you only ever will make discoveries that are consistent with that methodology. Methodology and you might miss out on stuff that you could have gotten if you'd applied very different lens to it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think it's that it's, it's very, I mean, talking about simplicity and complexity, it's very knotty, it's very complex, is that within, you know, we're not talking here about these earlier metaphysical presuppositions, like the principle of plenitude, etc. You know, in terms of within science, the ideas and principles that have mislaid have often just worked very well in other places. So yeah, I, I mean, I was looking the other day at how the discovery of radioactivity changed ideas of the age of the Earth, etc., because it meant that these earlier views of thermodynamics and this kind of short lifetime of the sun were, were radically expanded and therefore the past could be as well. And yeah, you'd think that that, you know, creates this, what I was talking about earlier, this idea of enormous finitude that's, you know, time is deep, but meaningfully deep in the sense that there's actual kind of bounds to it. But I was reading one of the geologists, John Jolly, and he said that, well, you know, the earth has all this radioactive material in it, potentially it's actually heating up rather than cooling down so that at some future point in time, it will become this molten mass again, but then will cool down again. And then there's just this cycle of things recurring and recurring and recurring. So you can see this, this kind of allergy towards origins or enormous finitudes or upper bounds, this idea that the eternal 
you know, time reversible cyclical system is just more aesthetically beautiful. And he actually says that in this passage that I'm, I'm referring to. He says, it just agrees more with science. The idea of cyclicity and eternity. He's just like, it's just because it's more parsimonious. So yeah, I think it's, you know, it's, it, this is an idea that has historically waylaid people, whether, you know, making meta inductions about the history of science is, is very, uh, you know, is warranted. Yeah, very risky territory. But um, yeah, I think that's at least an important lesson to be imparted. Yeah. An obvious question would be, you know, what do you think people are going to realize in hundreds of years times that we're fundamentally getting getting wrong today? That seems like a very heavy lift to manage to like step outside of our worldview so much that we can anticipate what people very far in the future <laughs> will, will see that, that we got really wrong. But something that I think is maybe more practical for philosophers or, you know, people doing intellectual history is to think, what ideas do we already have that haven't fully flowed through intellectually into all of the relevant relevant fields? I guess you've talked about, we came up with Darwinism, with, with, with evolution, and it seems like it took a long time for the, for the full lessons of that to seep into, into all of the relevant disciplines. And to some extent, arguably, it still hasn't, hasn't done that today. Are there any maybe, you know, other big ideas that you think uh, we, someone could get mileage by saying, what if I take this idea and apply it to this field where people haven't yet taken it properly seriously yet? Yeah, so I think that's a really fantastic question, actually. Really, really interesting. It never occurred to me, but um, there is this delayed effect. So therefore, going forwards. So I think there are two answers to it. There's in terms of communication to wider audiences, but then also kind of actually, you know, at the furnace doing novel conceptual work. In terms of communication, I think that the intuition of, you know, the sheer size of the observable, accessible universe hasn't quite sunken in. So I think that communicating that, because, you know, again, going back to the 1920s, Edwin Hubble, that's, you know, about 100 years old now. I think also the current ideas of how much of it is just, you know, inorganic, void, radiation... I think that hasn't sunken in either. Uh, I think a lot of people have this a priori kind of assumption, a bit like earlier generations, that, you know, there's probably interesting stuff going on in the vast majority of it because it would be a waste of space otherwise. So in terms of, I think there's, there's definite opportunity to be had in communicating these quite old insights, but linking them up to practical or just big picture, you know, what is to be done kind of questions. That's where the work could be usefully done. So, for example, this idea of the accessible universe, um, the affectable universe, you know, Ords has just kind of, um, you know, articulated that. The basic materials of that have been around for a very long time in terms of, you know, cosmologists knowing about the observable universe and talking about it in, ter- in those terms. So I think it's those are the places where, to go to the second point, you know, novel conceptual work can be done. So, you know, for example... What I think Nick Bostrom did, you know, almost single-handedly kind of making these kind of questions about existential risk into a field of study, what he did was apply concepts from analytical philosophy, from economics, from evolutionary science, and applied them to domains that were previously considered science fiction. So talking about the far future. So I think that that basic method... Recipe. Yeah, that basic recipe. Yeah, yeah. Hasn't been exhausted yet. So I think that there's still plenty of things to be gained from that. As a final thing, I think um, a lot of concepts, and this is based on me seeing what's kind of going on now, what places I think interesting stuff is going on, is concepts from dynamical systems theory being applied to wider domains. So, you know, the talk about path dependence, for example, talk about, you know, ergodic systems. I think those things, and this is a very speculative claim, but I think those insights from, you know, chaos theory, systems theory, can usefully be applied to wider domains. 
obviously we're getting into the really speculative domain now, but you know, applying them to sociology or the study of civilizations, what's possible. I mean, it's already being applied to evolution. So I think that there's, yeah, there's, there's potential gains there as well. Yeah, I only thought about this question for a minute or two when I was writing it. But I think that the best one I could come up with was that maybe the idea of path dependence or just total contingency and the fact like the idea that things don't always necessarily converge on the same outcome hasn't perhaps been applied as much as it could in many in many different fields. I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not a foreign idea, but I think I guess I kind of come down on the, on the line that the future is super contingent and it could hinge on potentially, you know, things that a single person implausibly could do. Admittedly, it probably would be, you know, the leader of a country or something like that. But I, I think people have a kind of aesthetic where they like to think of things as being somewhat more deterministic that like what is going to happen is, is, is going to happen. And I reckon that, that that could be blinding us sometimes to important lessons. Yeah, I think, um, and this is actually another failure of my book, is that it doesn't sufficiently make the distinction between thinking about human extinction as a possibility, plausibility, even probability, and the novel way of looking at it in terms of existential risk being, you know, kind of expected value, future generations, how huge that is compared to even just the whole past of civilization. But also really stressing just how, sure, people have thought about human extinction for a couple of centuries now, but it's only in the past couple of decades that people have started really thinking about it in this quite serious, you know, error-responsive, scientific, rational kind of way. Obviously, you can find precursors, but I think that the sheer novelty of that is an important thing to stress. And it does come from the fact that I think that the idea of historical contingency is being applied to sciences and scientific-derived fields is, in a sense, quite novel. So to go back to what I was talking about earlier with the earth sciences and the revolution that happened in the 1980s with the impact hypothesis... But also, you know, yeah, the idea of path dependence, you know, I've read economists who are interested in that idea complaining about how there's this kind of allergy to it because the idea that history matters isn't scientific and we need these kind of timeless principles. So, yeah, no, I think that um, I think I definitely agree. I think that just the, the idea of contingence and the sheer scope of contingence and applying it beyond the kind of places that we normally like to apply it, like kind of factual history, you know, thinking what would have happened if Hitler did X, Y, Z, applying it to these big picture questions, there's definite scope for, you know, big gains there, I think. Yeah, actually, another one, yeah, which you kind of talking about earlier is um, op- optimization. I guess, you know, some some fields, I guess, like economics and engineering, perhaps applied engineering are seeped in this idea of optimization and constrained optimization. But then there's other fields where it seems to be largely absent and, and kind of isn't part of the culture. And I guess, astonishingly, it seems like to some extent this was true in moral philosophy, that the idea of maximizing moral value is not like a fundamental thing within <laughs> within the field of, of, of moral philosophy. Obviously, some people think about it, but it's somewhat surprising that people haven't gotten more mileage out of that. Yeah, yeah. And this is something that I'm going to be looking at for like my next project, hopefully, is the history of this type of thinking, where it came from. But um, just in terms of anecdotally, I still come across that. That's one of the major pushbacks often when I talk to this from people outside of the communities that I you know, know will be responsive to it is why care about maximizing value? You know, why would you why would you care about having a universe with more value in it? Just be happy with what's here already. So yeah, it would be interesting, you know, doing the lineage of that type of thinking to see where where the inertial force behind that kind of intuition still derives from. Yeah. 
Sticking with, you know, bigger picture lessons that we might be able to learn from intellectual history, what do you think we can learn from, you know, historical failures about X-risk predictions? You know, when we think about like how, how good is our, is our thinking today? I, I can't remember, you know, all of the specific examples, but in the book, there's, in the early days in the 18th to 19th centuries, there were people who were worried about the earth cooling off really quickly because it would kind of run out of energy or, or that it would, you know, overheat because, because there would be like all, all of this energy, I think, coming out from radiation inside the earth once they found out about that. And they're like worried that that would happen quite quickly. Uh, and I think people, some people overestimate the risk of being hit by comets and things like that. Possibly our just science and technology has advanced a lot. And now we have like a much better grasp of the probabilities of these of these different outcomes. But I guess, I guess those examples where like when whenever people discovered a new phenomenon, a new a new kind of area of science or geology or whatever, they would they would leap to making probabilistic estimates of future trajectories of things and often get it quite wrong. Maybe we should be similarly cautious about like new phenomena that we've uh, discovered that that aren't properly fully mature sciences yet. Yeah, so going back to what I was saying before, I think what, these earlier predictions, they were all kind of wildly wrong, or at least, you know, well, very often are. It's because they were kind of throwaway, you know, throwaway speculations in an otherwise sober scientific paper. You know, there are good reasons why scientists have often tried to steer away from talking about the end of the world. Again, this is this is something, you know, kind of instilled by uh, Newtonian science was that, you know, orbits of these mathematical things thinking that asteroids could actually affect terrestrial history is you know leave that for the astrologers that's not for astronomers so the history is interesting because you have to go and pick out these uh it's it's fun is you have to go and pick out these throwaway asides and they're quite interesting seeing an otherwise sensible scientist engaging in this quite speculative thinking but because of that because they were just these throwaway asides there wasn't a kind of uh you know, communal sense of trying to correct those errors, you know, course correct, uh, change. It was just these footnotes, these nice little probabilistic estimates that wouldn't, the rest of the paper was what got attention and critique. What's changed is that that's now, you know, there is just force. Proper discipline. Exactly. It's It's not a throwaway line. It is the core topic of the paper is like, what is the probability of this terrible outcome? Yeah, exactly. So therefore, that's the thing that other people will critique, they'll course correct, or you know, hopefully the things that have caused science to be so successful in the past will now kick in in a way that they wouldn't when it was just a footnote in a wider in, in a wider book. In terms of how the predictions have gone wrong in the past, I think the kind of big one is is AI and AI timelines. And uh, Yudkowsky and Ord have already referred to these, you know, brilliant instances of very knowledgeable people saying you know, flight, heavier than air flight, or, you know, unlocking nuclear energy are impossible, you know, years, months, sometimes even the day before they were in a sense unlocked. But there are, there are a couple more interesting ones that I could add to that. So they come from Haldane, that um, British Indian geneticist that I mentioned earlier. And I focus on him because he is an incredibly knowledgeable scientist, but also incredibly forward thinking. So he was writing in the 1920s, 30s about the long range future of humanity. He's one of the first people, along with Bernal, to really kind of put it all together. You know, the idea of just the sheer capaciousness of the future, the amount of goodness that could be in it, you know, how long it could be. He's great on all of that stuff. You know, he's kind of this godfather of of long termism in a sense. But he gets these two really important things wrong. So the one is the the nuclear energy one. He's ta- he has, he's actually talking about the difference between natural risks and anthropogenic risks. This is an essay from 1927. And he says, you know, natural risks, background risks are probably very unlikely because we've existed, you know, thus far. Therefore, we should worry about risks from human aggression, from technology. And then he says, 
you know, civilization was probably invented once uh, about 10,000 years ago, maybe in Egypt. It's probably a really fragile thing. So if we mess it up, then maybe it won't reemerge in the same way. But we should count ourselves lucky because the only way of actually destroying civilization across the whole world is by unlocking atomic energy, um, <laughs> which, which in his words, he says is wildly unlikely. And this was this essay actually was written in 1932, the year before Leo Szilard actually conceptualized the nuclear chain reaction. The other interesting one is in this fantastic text called The Last Judgment, where he's, apart from H.G. Wells, he's like, in a sense, the first person to really think about long-range future of humanity. He talks about humanity becoming interplanetary, evolving into post-human states. And then at the end, so in the final final page of this, you know, really brilliant piece of long-range prediction, and this is the first time I've ever found anyone say this, he says, you know, humanity could spread across the whole galaxy. And he gives an estimate of 80 trillion years lifetime for the whole galaxy. So therefore, you know, if it spreads beyond that, it's not kind of anchored to the life cycle of a star. It's anchored to the life cycle of the galaxy. That's 80 trillion years. Lots of good things could happen. Then he laconically says, and there are other galaxies as well. This was in 1927. <laughs> a brilliant, yeah. you know, brilliant long range thinking, particularly for the time. But in this essay, he says, and because he's you know, help, helping himself to vast kind of swathes of future time, and he's talking about how humanity became interplanetary. And he gives an estimate of how long it takes for rocket flight to become feasible to the moon and then to Mars. And he gives an estimate of humanity first achieving, you know, interplanetary flight, or in the case of the moon, you know, flight to the moon. He gives an estimate of 8 million years. So he thinks that in the year 8 million, humanity will achieve space flight. <laughs> now, this was 42 years before humanity actually yeah. did land on the moon. It's such a juxtaposition, isn't it, between the optimism or like the, the big picture thinking on one on the one side, and then the I guess bizarre pessimism in some way <laughs> that would take us yeah. eight million years. He, yeah, he lists micro meteorites in in the void of space and the difficulty of decelerating on the other side, and also in the case of Mars, he um, thinks that there are current aliens living there that are aggressive. So you know, oh, wow. some yeah, some rather strange things going on. But otherwise, otherwise, he's uh, got this really sober and forwards thinking worldview but the, yeah the wider point is that these people who have you know otherwise creating brilliant predictions that have in many ways stood the test of time can just be wildly off you know the difference between 42 years and 8 million years in terms of achieving space flight that's the significant one so i think that yeah in terms of ai timelines the the track record is so bad that it's good to err on the side of caution or to err on the side of very broad credences. Like maybe it, it could happen this decade. It could happen the decade after that. It could happen in a hundred years. It's just like we should be pretty unsure because yeah, we don't have such a great track record of forecast. Like I guess some people come with this presumption that we've always thought that things will happen sooner, but I think that's not the case. People have erred in, in, in both directions pretty often. Mm, yeah, so going back to the idea of future habitability, I was recently trying to kind of track and chart how that's changed across time. And it's changed, you know, so drastically. Lord Kelvin said... 6 million years future habitability based on the cooling of the sun. Then when Eddington suggested nuclear fusion as this, you know, potentially power source that could create far more longevity, people updated their estimate of future habitability to a trillion years. You know, so that it's just kind of all over the place. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it's interesting in terms of the orders of magnitude of incorrectness. Yeah. 
yeah, I guess you're saying it seems like almost all the people who've thought a lot about the future have had some, or at least some of them have had some big hits, and even those people have had some big big misses, and that's kind of what I expect for myself as well. If I, if I get some big hits, then I'll then I'll be happy, and uh, it seems like it's hard to do that without also getting some stuff wrong when you're thinking about something that's so hard to so hard to picture. Let's push on and talk about intellectual history as a high impact career. So yeah, as far as I know, we've never had a historian on the show before, which obviously means we haven't had an intellectual historian uh, either. And I think you're you're reasonably familiar with 80,000 Hours goal of trying to help people have a bigger social impact with their career. Do you think some listeners should consider intellectual history as a potentially valuable career path to to go on? And and, uh, and if so, why? Yeah, so I think that insofar as long-termism, you know, EA aligned with long-termism is about, you know, affecting the far future, trying to shape it positively. I think that there is actually a good case for history, not necessarily intellectual history, but history broadly, to play a bigger role in this kind of new way of approaching priorities based on, you know, long arcs of history. So... I do think that it can be impactful in the sense of it can actually derive lots of information value. So you can gain these kind of nice insights and these things that we've been talking about a lot of you almost get a sense of the heuristics of background assumptions or crucial considerations. So that's a term that Bostrom uses to to basically describe a, a piece of information or knowledge that kind of changes your whole priorities. So I think the example he uses is if you're lost in the woods you're using a compass, then you realize your compass is broken. That's kind of a crucial consideration. I guess, I guess the idea being that it doesn't just mean that you should like go one degree to the right. It means that everything is thrown up into doubt. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So I think that it can be high impact in the sense that there is a lot of information value to be derived here. And, I, I, you know, I've noticed there's a post on the EA forum of potentially valuable research areas in history. I think those are all brilliant. I think there was also an 80,000 hours post talking about kind of non-standard careers outside of the you know major priority areas. And one of them was historian, long-term arc of history, specialization. Yeah. And I, so I think that there's definitely a scope for this. I think that historians tend to not be EA aligned. So there's value for EAs to go and become historians and figure out the useful stuff. However, it is a non-standard career. And it's also highly competitive and risky. And yeah, I mean, if you want to reliably have an impact, it's it's definitely not one to be advised. So if you want to take a big risk, maybe, yeah. I think to be fair, that's probably the case with almost all kind of academic or, or research careers that, again, again, it's like it's kind of hits based. <laughs> most most researchers don't have a massive social impact, but some of them really, really make important discoveries. And I guess I would encourage people to, to, to make peace with that rather than just try to you know play it, play it super safe, because that, that limits your options so severely. Yeah, yeah. So I think that that's the basic message I'd want to give is that, you know, I think there's scope for a lot of valuable information to be mined here. But the problem with that is that you don't know what information, particularly when you're, you know, trying to find these long term arcs or these stories about intellectual, moral, material, economic progress. You don't know what you're looking for ahead of time. I know that applies to almost all search functions in a sense, but you don't know if it's going to pay out at the end. So yeah, I do think because of that non-standardness and the riskiness, I think that's definitely something to consider. But I do think that, I mean, to put it simply, in, in, in EA and long-termism, there's so much history. There's so much talk of history, you know, the hinge of history, moral circle expansion. These are all historical ideas. Progress itself is a historical idea. So there's definite scope to you know, do valuable work here. Yeah, I guess maybe to, to make things more concrete in, in people's minds, do you have a Rolodex in your mind of kind of examples where history or intellectual history has proven really useful and, you know, made, made, made people, people's lives better in, in some identifiable way? 
Yeah, so probably because I've been reading about this recently, but I would point back to kind of breaking the spell on uniformitarianism within earth sciences and also cosmology in a wider sense is a lot of the geologists, paleontologists involved in breaking that spell were also very interested in the intellectual history of why that dogmatic, because it often was dogmatic, belief in the stability of the earth system had actually become so ingrained because that required intellectual history to unveil that that wasn't for scientific evidence-based reasons. It was for contingent social prestige reasons. And so it actually, I think, proved very useful there, retelling the story of the field and retelling how Charles Lyell, this brilliant lawyer, had managed to make the case very persuasively for this particular worldview of the Earth system. And it's, you know, basically a closed system that extra, you know, any kind of conscripting extraterrestrial causes in your explanations is as good as, uh, you know, being some kind of theistic catastrophist quack. So... It was retelling this, the genesis of the field there that actually, in a sense, I think definitely helped break the spell. So I think that's a good example of it proving useful. Are there any uh, you know, particularly valuable questions within intellectual history that you'd like to see people investigate that, that haven't already come up? Because I guess we've talked about quite a few. So I think the question of the history of moral circle expansion and what are the causes that shift people's intuitions outside of the kind of baseline of prejudice, you know, because... You can go back and find people arguing for various, very forward thinking moral positions earlier than that actually you know, spilled out and became a wider movement or a wider cause. So something must have happened to have created that critical mass. I think that that could be interesting. The Needham question that I spoke about earlier, this question of why, you know, one civilization you have over here, it's actually far more technologically advanced you know, has something like a steam engine to open doors in the palaces, but just decides not to use it elsewhere. And then you have another civilization, something happens there that means that science locks in as an institution that, you know, perpetuates itself, perpetuates knowledge in a, you know, in a unique way. What are the institutions behind that? I think that there's interesting research to be done there. Of course, and, and this is one that I've seen in various places, is researching the dynamics of lock-in. So instances in the past where we can see clear path dependence in culture, values, etc. Also, again, another obvious one is studying the rise and fall of civilizations, what creates civilizational resilience. I think that making inductions from the past there is dangerous because when civilizations have rose and fall in the past, often it wasn't a globalized technological civilization in the same way today. But people that working have worked in this field have already kind of made that point. Uh, tech trees, I think, is a really important and interesting place to try and look at, you know, in a sense, recreating an evolutionary tree of life, trying to do that for technology. And then that leads me to the final one that I find really interesting. And this comes from an idea that I got from um, a researcher, Karim Jabari. He has, I think it's a preprint paper currently, but it's called Replaying the Tape on Civilization. And he's taking those ideas of contingency and convergence from biological sciences and seeing if they can be meaningfully applied to civilization and cultural progress and technological progress. So as I was saying earlier, I think we do tend to overestimate the convergence or the recurrence or repeatability of a lot of insights, ideas, technologies, and the line is of course blurred. I would really love a, a map of, you know, cultural progress across different cultures, civilizations, and trying to map how how convergent some might be. And obviously the way of measuring this, and Jabari kind of puts this forward in the paper, 
is that you know if you can see a cultural practice appearing independently in lots of places you can kind of presume that it's conversion in the same way from evolution it becomes interesting because then when you get a more globalized society it can appear one place and then spread so there's lots of interesting questions there i think to be had and then yeah again that can affect our judgments of how severe certain collapse events or very destructive global catastrophic risks are so i think there's lots there's lots to be done there Nice, yeah. I guess uh, one kind of very practical history that some people have been doing, I guess I guess I've seen more of it over the last 10 years than, than, than before, is just try to create graphs that show people how life expectancy or income or like education have changed over the last two centuries. I guess I mean, you know, people dispute, you know, exactly are these time series quite right? Like maybe maybe things have been mismeasured in the past and things haven't improved as much as as much as they appear to. But I guess because like so much of the improvement is gradual in, in these various measures, like, you know, how many people are dying of disease, how how healthy are they, how long are they living, how much are they earning? It's very easy to kind of memory hold the fact that the past was just really awful in in, in so many ways. And it means that people don't realize that at least in my opinion, I think things are getting gradually better in, by, by most dimensions, not, not everyone, but, but on most of them. And it's kind of really, really important to know that as a historical point, because if things are getting better, then we don't want to throw out the, the system necessarily. We want to like kind of preserve what is good and allowing progress to occur now and to have occurred over the last hundred years. On the other hand, if things are stagnant or going backwards, then, then maybe we do really want to like change things in a really big way because the current system isn't working. So I think that that has been really important work that people have been doing, trying to correct the misperception that people have that the world is going to the dogs and that you know people are more unhealthy now than in the past or that crime is much higher than it was in the past when so so many of these things are just empirically incorrect yeah yeah i think that yeah again in terms of what i was mentioning earlier in terms of communication to wider audiences i think that that's something that would be incredibly useful i do get and it's obviously very hard to uh, measure these things and quantify them but i do often get the sense that there is a wide sense of malaise about you know, the future human potential, whether humanity itself is even a good thing within wider culture. And again, this is purely anecdotal. It's not based on any kind of data, but responses to articles that I write online where there's a comment section, it's often, you know, people saying, oh, extinction would be good. And I'm sure a lot of people that work in existential risk have had these similar discussions with, you know, someone, you know, as, 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 as is, you know, a kind of well-worn story now, but someone who would hate the murder of a child is, you know, at a dinner table might speculate about human extinction being a good thing. So, I mean, I talk a lot of in the book about this being a question of maturity, uh, and that's using this quite lofty enlightenment language of, you know, again, enlightenment being humanity kind of emerging from immaturity. And a lot of people respond to me saying, so you think that we're currently mature and everyone before us was immature, how megalomaniacal of you. <laughs> um, but I think I didn't stress enough that I'm not saying we've reached any completion of that. This process of maturity is, well, we're probably just very, very near the beginning. We've only just awoken to the possibility that it could go on for a lot longer. And so... It's more like they're 11 years old and we're 12 years old. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I'm not saying that we've kind of, you know, maxed out maturity. I'm saying that we've almost become, you know, 11 years, 12 years old in the sense of making that analogy. And again, this is something from speaking to Toby Ord. He, he, he proposed this idea that humanity is kind of in this almost adolescent phase where it's, you know, for the first time realized that it can wreak consequences on the world and, you know, by necessity, therefore wreak good as well as bad. And I think you can analogize it to this, you know, juvenile state of mind that I'm sure everyone's gone through when you first become aware of the responsibility for your own actions and you do something really awful. 
And then you feel that, you know, maybe you feel really dejected and really awful about yourself and you feel that maybe, you know, maybe, maybe you would be better off if you weren't around. Again, these analogies are, you know, very diffuse, very abstract, in a sense, quite simplistic. But nonetheless, I do think that there's a truth there is that, um, you know, as a civilization, as a global collective, humanity has created the means to do observable, very obvious harm, but therefore also massive amounts of consequential good in the past, you know, century or so. And, you know, it's kind of going through that that phase after, you know, after having to deal with that. I think that's what, in a sense, can explain some of that malaise. So, you know, the trauma, the collective trauma of the Holocaust is something that's often, you know, um, intellectuals often point to it as almost a disproof of human potential or the potential for humans to do good in the world. I think that's actually just a really, it's a massively monumentally important lesson, but it's almost this kind of very constricted historical view that, you know, we're just doomed to repeat the atrocities of the previous century for the whole of the rest of the time we're around on the planet. Yeah. I find it to some extent embarrassing. I, I feel it's embarrassing that like a lot of people who have basically the best lives that people have ever lived or like are pampered in terms of, you know, health and, and income and like general quality of life find themselves able to be so much more negative about their own life and, and, and the prospects for the world than people who lived such more difficult lives. You know, just, I guess, like people in China today, in, in, in many cases, who none, nonetheless are positive about things because they see the trends, uh, people in the 50s who are you know, still dying of all of these preventable diseases, but nonetheless, you know, thought that they could make the world a, a whole much better place. I, I don't know. I, I, now, I'm just, now I'm just getting into ranting, but I, it's a it's really interesting phenomenon that Like, I guess you could understand it if it was, you know, specific families, say, who had gone backwards economically or who, who, you know, who were in harder times now than they were in the 70s. But it doesn't seem to be connected with personal economic circumstances or personal, like how how well people's lives are going. Many people have lives that are going perfectly well and nonetheless buy into this pessimistic worldview, this this pessimistic kind of fashionable perspective on things. And yeah, I I, I don't like it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what's shocking to me always is how fashionable it is, like you say. Yeah. And how often you'll find people that you wouldn't otherwise expect to engage in these things kind of doing so. So, yeah, I mean, like I said, I used to be far more pessimistic about things, but I don't think I think that's just in a sense kind of the cultural default. And there's also I think there's also like a sense of prestige on it that it's a kind of um, quite a learned um, mm. Yeah, to be cynical, uh, exactly. To be yes. jaded—that's that's that's the wise position. Whereas it's like fools like me who haven't thought about it, who are who are, who are optimistic about the future because we don't realize how bad things really are. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think you know there's this kind of Pangossian optimistic phase in the early Enlightenment. Then you know that continues through into the vast investment in inevitable teleological process in the 19th century, and then that gets you know, obliterated by a lot of the events of the 20th century. So now there's this kind of overriding pessimism. But I think that, yeah, that comes from this narrow view of, well, the fact that, yes, progress is possible, but the stress is impossible. William James has this really great quote where he says something like, you know, progressivists think that progress is inevitable, meliorists think it's possible. So it's this idea of meliorism and also the sheer fragility of all of that potential that's a novel view, as far as I'm aware, in terms of you know having a wide community cause movement, however you want to put it, actually uh, kind of articulating that. So yeah, hopefully it, it seeps in, and this cultural malaise will um, eventually be some a, point break. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 
Yeah, I guess I, I should qualify that. I know there's, I know people who have thought about this a great deal and have very sophisticated or thought through views for like why they think perhaps things are more likely to go to go badly than to go well. I think that the thing that's more strange is among people who for whom this isn't something that they really study or think about very much. That you know, it's something that they might just occasionally bring up at you know uh, at dinner because it's interesting to say that society is terrible and going to get worse. Why why are they so much more inclined to adopt the view that things are going to go badly than than to say that things are likely to to, to go positively? Uh, whereas I guess in the past people who similar hadn't thought about it that deeply, but we're probably more likely to say the reverse. Yeah, it's an interesting phenomenon. Yeah, yeah. Let's move on from talking about how these careers might be useful to think about like what they might actually look like in, in practice for someone who is trying to pursue them. I don't know a whole lot about history careers, but I kind of have this stereotype that it might be really hard to get a job in history, especially in, in academia, because, you know, lots of people study history potentially as, as undergraduates or find it, you know, really intellectually stimulating. And then when they graduate, there's not, you know, a huge industry trying to, trying to potentially poach them to, to, to apply history to, to very lucrative ends. And so there might be a lot of people applying for these academic history roles that are probably somewhat limited. Is that kind of right that it's a difficult and potentially like quite demanding path academically? Yeah, yeah, I, I think it definitely is, at least in my personal experience. And I think that's because a lot of historians, again, this is a vast and unfair and perhaps silly generalization, but aren't focused on impact in in the way that we're talking about. So it is, you know, not seen as an impactful career in that sense. And particularly when I started down the track, I wasn't sensitive to any of those things. I mean, this was a very long time ago now, but, you know, I wasn't thinking about that. I've woken up to it, luckily, you know, later on. But yeah, so I mean, for example, after finishing my PhD a few years ago, I applied for upwards of 30 jobs, only got replies on about five of them, and they were all negative replies. So there's a lot of failure. And you, I think, yeah, you just have to become used to it if you're going to take the path of academia, but particularly humanities academia, and particularly the kind of softer end of the humanities. So yeah, it is difficult. Yeah. So for the, the kind of work that would like to see more people do is, is the path, you know, study history as an undergraduate potentially, and then do a postgraduate degree. And then is it basically just academia or are there kind of other other roles that you might be able to go into where you'd be able to do valuable, valuable research? Yeah, I'm not so sure. I think you mentioned this on, on the ATK website is that specializing in being an economist is probably a safer route because then you have other options elsewhere. So I actually took a, again, an even more non-standard route is I didn't do history as undergraduate. I did English, luckily enough, where I did it in Oxford, you can kind of just do whatever you want. So I just decided to specialize <laughs> in the history of ideas and was lucky enough to get a PhD supervisor who also did that. So I think, well, at least in, again, in my own personal experience, doing academia and doing it right is probably more luck than anything else. So, yeah, I, again, I think that's just an important thing to take into consideration. But again, in terms of in terms of doing this useful historical work, I think there are opportunities within the EA sphere of like grant, you know, grant making and getting funding for these things. So, you know, whether you classify that as academia or not, I think that there are there is a, this um, emerging space of opportunity to do these things and get supported for it. Yeah. So who's funding your, your work at the moment? Are you funded, uh, you know, in particular, or is it, does the, the funding just come through Oxford or the Future of Humanity Institute in general? So it's through the Berkeley Existential Risk Initiative. So I do research contracting for the Future of Humanity Institute, but the paycheck comes from, comes from Berry. The contract is then supervised by the FHI. So it's, it's, it's an interesting kind of, you know, 
semi-independent role. But it's, I mean, I'm very thankful for it because it uh, arrived, the possibility arrived, the opportunity arrived when I was quite close to kind of giving up on the whole academia thing. So, <laughs> right. so yeah, so no, I, I, I would say that it's um, it's a very, it's a hard career to get right. And I'm prone to think that there's a lot of luck that has gone into me getting it right. Because as in, I'm saying, you know, as long as you have the baseline skill to, you know, produce something productive and useful, I think that there's a, yeah, again, we're talking about contingency here. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it does seem like over the last 10 years, there has definitely been a trend towards there being more money available to fund this kind of research in like somewhat random fields or in, or in random, on random topics, in as much as donors think that it's relevant to effective altruism or, I guess, long termism and existential risk specifically. So I suppose that could change. But it's something that if you were thinking, oh, you know, I might be looking for a job and I'd like to study something that's relevant to long termism in, in five years time, maybe, you know, one path is just try to go the, the, the traditional standard academia route and maybe you get in. But I guess the, the odds are somewhat stacked against you um, unless you happen to be like a really unusually brilliant. But then there is this kind of backup route of getting funding directly from people who care about you doing research on specific topics and and, and trying to learn these answers themselves, which I guess it, it feels like for many for people studying many other things, it's, it's much harder to find philanthropic funding to pursue like their interest in, in whatever academic field. If, if they don't get a job in academia, then that might be it. Yeah, yeah. So I think one thing is that, and again, I want to stress that a lot of this is colored by personal experience of the people that I knew, the people that I know within academia. But I think a lot of academics go into academia with a very individualistic sense of what they're going to contribute, as in it's the, you know, the one big vision. And so I think that if you want to put your weight behind a movement, yeah, like you mentioned, you know, you're more likely to then get that funding. So I think that that's something is that if you go into it wanting to already participate in some kind of ongoing space with good funding and opportunities within it, then I think, yeah, you're more likely to. But at least with at least within the humanities, it's kind of there is this kind of, oh, I'm going to contribute this, my individual vision, my own philosophy. So I think that might be one of the reasons why it is very um, the state that it is in at the moment. Oh, interesting. It sounded like you were suggesting earlier that maybe if someone wanted to go into history, it might be better to study in an adjacent field, I guess, especially potentially economics, because it's not so hard to transfer from doing some sort of economics related PhD into history. But if you end up deciding not to do that, then you have stronger, stronger backup options than you might if you'd just done a narrow history PhD. Yeah, yeah. And I think there's another reason to put on top of that it's just far more likely to give dividends in terms of things that people will find useful because it's uh, more quantitative. There's more you know, evidence-based. It's harder in that sense of the word, I think. And it's also, I think it's just more, it's more obvious that, you know, if you want to do progress studies, for example, it's more obvious that you should go into economics. And I, when I say that, I think there's good reason for that. The, the ideas side of things, I think is, it's underappreciated that it's even useful in the first place. I mean, I hope that I, you know, here have made some case of its use, but I think that that's, it's just, a, it requires a bit more persuasion. It requires a bit more explaining why it's even something in the first place, you know, because I just think that there is an attitude that is that there's this kind of trans-temporal menu of ideas and people just select different parts from it over time rather than the, the vision that I've tried to present, which is, you know, and I, I keep using these evolutionary metaphors, but as you know, that there's these, you know, dependencies and, you know, one insight is gated on another 
in the same way that you couldn't have mammals without vertebrates. You know, there's it's the same thing applies to ideas. So yeah, I think that that takes a, just a bit more persuasion. So in terms of places where in the past have reliably, you know, paid dividends, I think economic history and maybe the history of technology have just more reliably been things that have, you know, produced impactful results. This might be a really hard question to answer or sum up, but what is kind of the worldview of history as an academic discipline? Like what do historians as a group think is their role? What do they think are the priorities for for historians as a field? Yeah, I, I really don't think I could answer that. Um, okay, it's just all over the place a bit? Yeah, well, I think, again, the even just the outlook of the history of ideas, you do get departments that do it, and it's often something you can specialize in in a master's course. But it's even then it's kind of on the periphery of uh, most history in history departments is kind of material history, military history, you know, not not all in any sense, but it's more based on, you know, the kind of history that you, you'd recognize as what you get taught in school. It's not necessarily the history of philosophy or the history of science, although those are things that you can specialize in in, in lots of courses. Okay, so you'd say like, as a rule, like uh, historians do kind of study the things that you might expect them to do. Like, you know, what happened in World War Two? You know, you had this king, then that king, then that king. Uh, that's that's like where a lot of the a lot of the work is going. Yeah, I think at, at least in my experience, and I'm sure if there are any actual historians listening, they're probably tearing their hair out right now and saying that I'm wrong. <laughs> um, and yeah. It, yeah, so but again, at least in in my experience, that is what a lot of history does focus on. Again, there's so much range within, you know, we're talking about a whole discipline here. It's kind of, I appreciate, I appreciate the question, but it, it is kind of like asking, like, what do scientists what, do? What do scientists do? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Fair enough. Yeah, fair enough. Do you have any visions for how, yeah, future history of ideas um, or intellectual history might be able to, you know, deliver concrete benefits that you might hope to see in your in your lifetime? Yeah, so, so an important one, I think, is... Um, it shows in a structured rather than globally skeptical relativistic way, but in a kind of structured way, it shows how wrong our basic intuitions can be on the world, how everything fits together and how our goals or what we think should, would, would be, you know, what doing good means within that world. It shows how wrong our basic intuitions can be. And I think that's really important for talking about things like long-termism because it does kind of clash with a lot of basic intuitions. And I think that's often, in a sense, the kickback against it when you get people that are skeptical about it. So in a sense of just showing how vastly misfiring all of our intuitions have been for the, you know, for, for, for a very long time. And again, I qualify that with this, you know, saying that we're kind of, we've reached a level of maturity where we are mature enough to realize that we can go wrong. And that in itself is monumental, right? You know, we've realized that error is a significant thing in our reasoning. So we've still got a, a long way to go. And I kind of hope we do. But yeah, in another sense, I think that when we're talking about movements and building movements, the history of ideas is useful because it makes explicit underlying background assumptions that are required for that worldview. So if it's true what I've been saying about the fact that we take a lot of ideas for granted that are actually doing a ton of the kind of inner workings of a lot of the production, the output of our ideas at the end in terms of what should be done or what in fact is, if that is true, then we actually aren't actually aware of a lot of what's going, you know, going on upstream of our worldview. 
And so recapitulating through history actually forces you to make explicit some of those basic insights. So one of the ones that I've you know been talking about a lot is these ideas about possibility or ideas about, you know, habitability or time, these really basic ones that we all take for granted now. So I think actually making them explicit is very useful because it, in a sense, creates a high level recipe it maps out how to retain that worldview and so it can create resilience for it so i think that's an important thing to think about also i think that just in terms of importance so you know we don't we wouldn't know how significant the contributions of a galileo or you know one of the other classic heroes of modern science we wouldn't know how important what they contributed was if we didn't know how wrong everything was beforehand and so i say this in the sense of you know kind of contributing to the discussion about the hinge of history is this talk about influence and influence of previous generations. I think that you could make the claim that regardless of whether the current generation is the most influential one of all, you know, across time, you could actually make the claim that it's the first generation to be influential in the sense of influence based on intentional and informed decision. So I would point towards, you know, Classic examples of highly influential people in history, uh, Jesus or highly influential institutions, the Catholic Church, they were vastly influential and have continued to be, but not in the sense of informed, intentional decision. Jesus and particularly his disciples wanted to be influential in the sense of actually ending the universe, right? You know, in the sense of you know accelerating rapture. So they were kind of, I shouldn't use the word influential, but um, they've perpetuated or propagated a consistent effect upon the world but not in the way that they wanted or not in the way that they could even envision because they didn't have an idea of a secular, open-ended, contingent future that could be influenced by present decisions, et cetera, et cetera. So they were kind of, I think that, again, a biological analogy is useful here is that species want to perpetuate themselves, but that want comes with big scare quotes in the fact that it's basically instinctual, it's blind, there's not an explicit theory of change or a model of how to actually create change. So I would make the claim, and this is quite a strong claim, and I want to you know, go and do more research to back it up, but I think that we could be the first generation where all those insights have actually come together, wherein you can actually make an intentional, informed, you know, error-sensitive, evidence-based, rational decision on shaping the far future. And so that, you know, that piles on further pressure because we don't want to create negative founders effects, et cetera, et cetera. But it's, I think it's an, it, it, a useful thing to know because you can find people, uh, you know, you can point out people kind of talking about whether the first humans were the most influential people. And that's just kind of missing the point. Again, I'm talking about the history of ideas as, you know, it's like the backbone of all of our thinking and we take it for granted because it's kind of just doing its work silently behind us. So, yeah, I think that that's, a, that's an important thing that can come from the history of ideas is actually weighing up our influentialness and where we stand and, you know, where we stand within the wider arc of history, because in a sense, that's what this is all about. Mm. Yeah, that, that just prompted me to think about this aside. I've, I've been listening to these lectures on history of ancient Egypt and kind of how, how they thought about things. And it talks about this, uh, there's one pharaoh around 1500 BC, whose name was Akhenaten, uh, if I recall who I guess some people have described perhaps just as a thought-provoking idea as as kind of the first individual in history, because it's maybe the the first person where we have lots of written records of them attempting to completely revolutionize their society. So Akhenaten basically became a cult leader for this like new religion. 
that was very different from the existing Egyptian religion, which had been carrying on more or less unchanged for 1500 years. And he basically tried to get this, what at the time was the most advanced civilization in the world, to completely change its whole ideology, to change all of their religious views and to change their practices and to move the capital and, and all of that, kind of just single-handedly, I think, because he had these particular religious convictions. And it didn't work. <laughs> he, he died and it was all it was all reversed. But it's interesting that we can kind of maybe pinpoint, like I guess, because we Rick had written records don't go back that long. It's an example of like someone really just completely trying to change history in, in, individually and seeing, seeing that for the first time. I'm not sure, not sure quite how that connects with what you're saying, but I, but I think it's uh, super fascinating. And we can link to, uh, yeah, the, the articles about Akhenaten as a, as a pharaoh. Yeah, that, I mean, that sounds very interesting. I'm definitely going to check that out. So it does connect to what I was saying, because obviously there's a rich history of thinking about intergenerational justice and these questions but there's a distinction to be made is, so of course, creating pyramids, obelisks, sphinxes is in a sense, you want to affect the future. You want to create a long-term propagating effect on it. But it's very different, at least in my view. And again, like I said earlier, I want to go and shore this up and make sure that it's actually based in a lot more evidence. But when you look at these attitudes in elder times, it's the dead hand of the past on, on, on the future. It's, not, it's, it's a sense of lording it over the future of just showing how influential you were. Or another way of putting that, and this is, I was reading about ideas of generational, intergenerational justice in the Christian tradition and also in the ancient Greek and Plato, etc. It's often, I would say, a very partial idea in the sense of the opposite of impartial. It's that you care about future generations because they're you in some sense, because they're just they're just different versions of you there that, you know, in the sense of that, the selfish idea of reproduction or creating progeny is you're just creating more of yourself, right? So, you know, these elder traditions, when they're talking about future generations, they're talking about future generations of the same clan, of the same kin. What's novel in modern thinking about future generations? And I would say, again, in my, you know, cursory beginning research on this topic, it really does begin with people like Sidgwick and also the economist who was very influenced by him, uh, Francis Edgeworth. And this is uh, in the latter 1800s you actually begin to get this impartial sense of the value of future generations where you're not, you know, it's not the dead hand of the past on the future and neither is it you care about the future because it's you or it's a propagated version of you. You care about it impartially regardless of, you know, what they look like, who they are, how different they might be from you. There's actually a quote from Edgeworth that I wanted to read if that's all right. Go for it. So this is, uh, yeah, this is, I think this is around 1870s. And this is, you get this shift in thinking about future generations, I think, around this time. So Edgeworth says, uh, but can we be certain that this method of total selection of resource allocation holds good when we provide not only for the next generation, but for the indefinite future? In the continuous series of generations, wave propagating wave onward through all time, it is required to determine what wavelet each section of each wave shall contribute to the proximate propagated wave so that the whole sum of light of joy which glows in the long line of waves shall be the greatest possible. You're going to have to translate that for me. <laughs> so he's just saying that we can think of, you know, the human lineage in this expanded sense where, again, it's impartial and we can think about it as this long trajectory, this long wave you can zoom in and we see that we're each, you know, in the same way that you zoom in on a wave and you can find smaller waves within it. We're each these smaller, smaller waves. And we have to decide how much we want to sacrifice for the future to create the maximum sum of joy possible across that whole vast wave. 
Now, that's just very different from Plato or, you know, early Christian philosophers talking about how the Bible or, you know, the, the ideal state demands that we care about future generations that are, in a sense, you know, just going to be the same as us. So, yeah, I think, that, you know, that's an incredibly important novel modern insight and yeah to go back to what we were saying about you know pharaohs versus you know us current generation people only as far as as far as i i would argue only start talking in that sense sometime in the 1870s it builds it builds it builds and i think only now people kind of just you know spending their entire lives thinking about the ethics of these things you know that's the way that parfit puts it so yeah in a sense you know we live in a hinge of history as i was saying earlier but potentially the first in the sense of not just in a, a fork event, because obviously those have happened before places where stuff could have gone very badly, irreversibly wrong. But a play, we're at a point where we have the minimal amount of insight about how the world hangs together and our ideas and goals within it, wherein we can actually make an informed, intentional decision. I think that you could make that argument. Again, you know, I'm not putting full confidence in it at all. But I think that that's an argument that could be made. And it's an argument that you only, it's an insight that you only get from looking at the history of ideas. What, what are some interesting things that you've learned from your early research for, for your next major project? Yeah, so, so that's one of them, this shift in thinking about intergenerational ethics and where that came from, why it was obstructed for so long. There are other ones that I'm looking at in terms of, again, as I was mentioning earlier, how ideas of the upper bounds of habitability or, you know, the kind of upper bounds of the lifespan of humanity, human descended things has changed. There's also, I'm very excited in trying to get really into the technicals of thinking about how history became contingent in the sense of people recognizing that there are these forks and pathways how did those those models begin? And also really getting to grips with the idea of path dependence and, you know, where that emerges, how, because as far as I'm aware, no one's actually really looked into that history yet. So yeah, lots of these, you know, and, and also just the idea of influentialness and all of these ideas going into the long-termist worldview. Yeah, there's some, it's just some really exciting stuff. And I think that, yeah, so, you know, kind of the, the previous project of looking at the history of human extinction has been revealed in a sense to be like just this kind of subset of this wider thing of, uh, you know, how did we, how did uh, people begin really caring about the far future and realizing that, you know, the kind of lion's share of value could potentially exist out there. Yeah, in the future. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I was going to ask, how do you feel about effective altruism and, and long-termism? But I think it's uh, somewhat come out through this conversation that you uh, you kind of like both of them. You think uh, long-termism and effective altruism are both pretty cool. Is there some risk to studying a community or a perspective that you kind of consider yourself to be involved with, you know, a part of and an and, and advocate for? It seems like that could potentially blind you to to some aspects of it that, that, you, that you wouldn't want to believe. Yeah, so I think that, of course, that is a risk. And you have to be aware of, particularly when you're doing the type of history that isn't the, you know, Foucauldian, let's just uncover the global relativism of all of our normative claims. You know, let's disappear into the miasma of relativism. Let's undermine everything. And I'm not saying that that's a dichotomy and there are only those two mutually exclusive options. But um, when you're trying to do the other type, where you're trying to, you know, put into relief these clear gains in insights or moral progress... It can become a triumphalist narrative. It can become teleological in a bad sense. 
So that is, I mean, again, it's just, a, it's just a, a potential biasing factor that I have to be aware of. I mean, one thing is that it took me a long time to actually fully come round to all of the principles of EA and long-termism. More so EA. Uh, I think it was actually the kind of this more recent phase where long-termism has come to the fore. That's what just kind of gelled with me more naturally. But it took me a long time. So like I said, you know, very early on, and I don't want to talk about like an intellectual trajectory or career because I'm still incredibly young, but, um, you know, it sounds pompous and pretentious as well. But um, <laughs> but um, at the very beginning, I had this kind of, you know, postmodern, like, you know, anti-enlightenment, anti-humanist kind of outlook. You know, I quickly got rid of that and then had this, you know, kind of Kantian outlook and was interested in human extinction because of, you know, deontological reasons. And yeah, it's only it's only more recently that I've really realized that there's stronger arguments against it and also just thinking about it more clearly and ironically more consequentially come from taking a more consequentialist attitude. And it's it's the idea of impartial value, the perspective of the universe. Those are the kickers, I think. So so I think that kind of, uh, you know, in a sense, doesn't provide much protection, but might provide a tiny <laughs> bit is that I wasn't always a convert. I was working on these questions for different reasons originally and kind of came around to it through you were convinced. a kind of delayed process. Yeah, yeah. I think it was a yeah. process of con- convincing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I suppose that, yeah, maybe that gives you partial partial protection uh, right now because uh, you've only come around to it recently. A lot of your ideas you were having before you were <laughs> maybe socially committed <laughs> to, to, to any particular view. I guess in the future, um, the protection might be, you know, uh, external critique. People will tell you when you're wrong and, and argue argue against your, your views and you, ha- you have to see, you know, do, do your books stand up? Have you received any kind of uh, useful negative reviews maybe? Or has there been any feedback from people who are, who are thoughtful, who have, have given you pause about anything in the book? Yeah. So there's, again, it's often people pointing out or just saying, have you thought about this other tradition? People who know a lot more about those things being like, oh, you know, there are aspects of this tradition that reach these kind of things a bit earlier than I would have thought. Those are really useful. Again, I'm going to be quite bullish. I I don't think that the idea of, you know, human extinction in the physicalistic, you know, scientific sense did appear in, say, you know, XYZ continent in like 3000 BC. I just don't think in the same way that we were talking about, you know, the Precambrian rabbit that would disprove evolution. I think that that's, you know, that's my Precambrian rabbit. I don't think that's going to happen. But certain insights that are very important to it, I think were probably reached earlier in different traditions and in the, the European, Anglophone, Francophone, Germanophone one that I'm kind of entrenched in. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. If, if there's been like more than one conception, I mean, it's, it's very understandable that you have like much more coverage of of European thought because it's just so much easier for you, for you to access and so much more familiar. But I guess by the time when you're starting to like really look into lots of details of, of European thought, just like a single example of something from a properly separated culture is so much more useful for getting a sense of what people can believe and in what directions ideology can go. Because uh, the cross-contamination just reduces the sample size so, so, so massively. I mean, the one that I'm really interested in is looking at philosophy of history and historiography and the Chinese tradition. There's this kind of old saw of history and the history of ideas that, you know, they were had this inherently entrenched cyclical view of history i get the sense that that might be wrong so i'm going to go out and check check that out and again that's from having spoken to people that know a lot more about the history of ideas in china so yeah i think it's things like that also the just through talking to people pointing out the attention that we spoke about earlier that you know i stress this idea of humanity kind of bravely 
you know, defining values against this indifferent universe. And then you fall into that Epicurean thing of, well, if they're the only thing defining value, does it matter if they disappear? You have to have that more impartial view. And also, you know, you want to stress the significance of non-sapient sentient life as well. That's something that I've updated on having spoken to people after after the book came out. Yeah. Is there any simple way of summing up how it is that you kind of went from embracing a more critical postmodernist perspective to kind of believing to some degree in the in the positive march of march of history? So I think it was, uh, yeah, it was from actually reading Enlightenment texts for the first time. So this is a, this is a long time ago. It's, you know, for undergraduate, you're taught to do what I was taught to do, you know, the Foucault, Derrida, that kind of outlook. Deconstruction was very popular back then. I don't think it is as much anymore, but it was. And then the things you're deconstructing, you're meant to go out and, you know, rebelliously go and deconstruct the great enlightenment texts. That's the kind of, you know, the, the, where the, the, I guess the low hanging fruit or the soft underbelly of humanity is to go and deconstruct. And I actually obviously had to read those texts and I was just very convinced initially by Kant. It was Kant that really, I was like, okay, this guy's actually far more coherent than Foucault, for example. <laughs> <laughs> and then yeah. so obviously, yeah, from, from, uh, it was also reading analytical philosophy as opposed to continental philosophy very early on. So again, I'm talking 10 years ago, Again, this is, you know, shows how, how young and early career I am, that that seems long ago to me. But, um, yeah, actually engaging with analytical philosophy and thinking this is rigorous and the rigor allows you to do more things. So it's in the sense of constraints. There's, I think, funnily enough, quite a libertarian idea of freedom in the continental tradition. that It's just rejecting, rejecting authority norms, constraints, because they're all arbitrary. And that's how you get freedom. I think I arrived at this more positive sense of freedom is that actually having the rigor of constraining methods, you know, like, again, yeah, the constraints of rigor actually is, those are enabling constraints and they actually allow you just to think more. And I mean that in terms of scope, not just in terms of, you know, sitting there and spending more time thinking. But yeah, I think it just widens the scope of what you can think. And I found that incredibly interesting. So I think that's, that was the, that was the uh, conversion moment, so to speak. All right. Uh, we've been going for, for quite a while and I've got to get off to a housemate's birthday party. Maybe to finish off, uh, I'd be interested to know whether you have a, have an answer to this one. I guess, what are some of the funniest things that the ancients believed or maybe even like took for granted in, in your view? Are there, are there any other ones that we haven't talked about already? Yeah. So there's, there's one that I, um, I, I think, I think is, is great. So it's not, it's not ancients, actually. It's early moderns. So the question of embryology was, and I'm sure I'm sure a lot of your li- listeners have heard this before, because it's one of the kind of famous, funny things that ancients thought. But I think not many people will know the sheer extent of how crazy it got. So in the field of embryology, there wasn't before microscopes, there wasn't really a sense of how any of that works. And they had this, well, this is by, prior to the idea of epigenesis. So epigenesis, not epigenetics in the modern area of evolution, but epigenesis in the sense of a, an animal being formed from a kind of, you know, unformed mass. There wasn't that sense of how that worked. And so they thought they believed in this thing called preformation, which was the idea that within the ovule or the sperm of an animal is contained its offspring in miniature form. Uh, and so there'd be a tiny person. Exactly. So this is the homunculus theory. So I'm sure everyone's, you know, has seen that the brilliant illustration of a sperm with a little man inside it. So this is the homunculus theory based on preformation. And this led a lot of people to actually, you know, when they started to think it through. So as a French philosopher, Malbranche, he said, well, if one is contained in the other one, then surely that goes on forever. 
and then said, well, at the beginning of creation, all humanity was contained within Adam's, uh, you know, Adam's sperm. Uh, so this idea that the whole of uh, the whole of all future generations were, you know, there present at the beginning of creation and just had to be kind like, of like like babushka dolls, the Russian dolls, exactly. just like ever smaller. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So they had to just be pro- progressively unfurled, and that's all that you know. That's all that time and intergenerational affiliation uh, is is just unfolding these pre-existing preformed people when people discovered sperm under the microscope the question became oh my god so many of these are going to waste again uh. this, this idea <laughs> this intuition of allergy to the idea of waste in the natural world so Leibniz said uh, oh no so you know these all do contain micro people down infinitely in terms of this infinitely divisible matter but when they get wasted, they just kind of lie latent until they can find something to inseminate and create life somewhere. So, yeah, I just would have, um, <laughs> I guess where I'm going with this is uh, I would, if, if, if that was still something we thought, I wonder what population ethics would look like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, was this a common view or was this like the, the, the purview of uh, strange philosophers? Um, so again, like we said earlier, I don't think many normal people were even thinking about embryology about yeah, 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 and didn't have the time uh, in between, you know, hard work and uh, pretty uh, miserable existence a lot of the time to actually think about these things. But yeah, I mean, there was, a, there was a, a rife argument when the idea of epigenesis emerged. There was an argument ongoing for a century or so between these learned scientists on, you know, whether, whether it was preformation or epigenesis. But yeah, again, it just shows you how wrong our basic intuitions are about the world is we didn't even realize that, you know, animals are kind of created in uh, from scratch, so to speak. Yeah. 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 Uh, I guess the yeah the past is full of more incredible beliefs than, than our historians can, can even imagine. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's the job of the future historians to uncover our ones. <laughs> <laughs> it should be, should be quite entertaining for them as well. Uh, my guest today has been uh, Tom Moynihan and the book is X Risk, How Humanity Discovered Its Own Extinction. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Tom. This has been super fun. Yeah, thank you. This has been an absolute joy. If you're interested in spending your career working to reduce the chance of human extinction uh, or any of the other topics that we talk about on the show, uh, then you can apply to speak with our team one-on-one for free. Uh, for the first time in a couple of years, we've removed our waitlist to apply for advising. Uh, so our team is keen to speak with more of you loyal podcast listeners. If you manage to make it through that marathon four-hour episode, uh, there's a good chance that you're in the target audience for our one-on-one advising. Our staff can discuss which problem you ought to focus on, uh, look over your existing career plan, uh, introduce you to potential mentors, uh, and also suggest roles that might particularly suit your skills. Uh, just go to 80,000hours.org speak if you want to learn more and apply if it looks right for you. The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced by Kieran Harris, audio mastering by Ben Cordell. Full transcripts are available on our website and made by the ever-attentive Sophia Davis-Vogel, who has added a lot of links to the transcript for this episode. All right. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon.